Welcome to part two of the June 5th, 2023 Poker Fraud Alert radio show. This was split into two parts for the archives. It was all recorded in one very, very long live program. And it took me a while to edit because I had a lot of other things going on. So rather than make you guys wait for all this time to edit the whole thing, I split it into two parts, which I know is not all that popular, but it was either that or wait a long time for the show. So I think this is the better option. We have about four and a half hours, a little bit more than that, of programming for you here. And it's the second half of the show. If you want to hear the first half, which features a lot of Brandon Drexel Gerson as well, check out the previously posted archives of part one. And we will have another show, another live show coming up soon. So stay tuned. Okay, so I've got one more topic. Yeah, gonna, I got to go. I'm fading. Okay. Uh, you have one more Vegas? One more Vegas topic actually about a poker player in Vegas, but I think you'll find it interesting. Have you heard of a poker player named uh, Mike Gorodinsky? Oh, I know this whole story already. Oh, you know yeah. it. Okay, yeah. So, And I know him anyhow. I've played with him before. He's a nice guy. Yeah, he is a nice guy. I don't know him very well, but you know, from what I've seen of him, he, he seems like a nice guy. Anyway, he's been around a while. This is what he tweeted on June 1st. Went to Bellagio today to access my box, and my key was stuck or not opening it, meaning the his safe deposit box, the key you give them to open it. There's two keys that go in. There's the staff key, which uh, they have to use to open it, but then it still can't open. It needs your key, too. It needs both keys together to be able to open the box. That's, that's standard at safe deposit boxes. So his key, it wasn't turning. There was, there was no way to get it open. So he said they wind up having to drill it, and when they lift the box out, and drilling it means that they actually drill it open. So that's the way you get in if, if like you lose the key or whatever. So they ended up having to drill it because his key wasn't working. And what ended up happening? When they lift the box out, it's empty. Extremely fucked up situation, he writes. If anyone has any insight on best steps or who to contact from here, please reach out. So imagine that. And I've thought of it before. Imagine you put a lot of money or casino chips or both in your box waiting for you to play poker the next time. And you come back to your box and forget the whole part about it having to be drilled open. Just next time you go to your box, they give it to you and it's empty. I've thought of it before. I have feared this before. It's never happened to me. But I have feared that one of these times I'm going to come to my box and it's empty. So that apparently happened to Mike Gordinsky at the Bellagio Poker Room. How much did he claim he had in it? When was the last time he was in it prior to it never to was. Happened? It never was said. That wasn't stated. Never said a number. Good questions, but not stated. So I thought about it. I thought, hmm, what happened here? So something that stuck out to me was the fact that the key wasn't working. See, if the key wasn't working, that would mean it was either rekeyed or something went bad with his key. That maybe the key got ground down somehow, but that's no, not that likely. Maybe his key got old and just wasn't working right. But that wouldn't be related to why the money would be stolen. And then, uh, but if the key wasn't working related to the theft, they either rekeyed it and they previously drilled it open and rekeyed it. But then why would they even bother to rekey it at that point if they drill it open? I was like, I'm thinking to myself, it just seems like a coincidence to me that the key isn't working and it's empty. It would seem much more likely that uh, 
someone just got into it in some way and stole from him and the key would still work. It's the fact that the key doesn't work. Like, why would they ever make the key not work? What would be the point of doing that if they've already gotten this stuff? So I asked a question because I came up with a theory as to what might have happened there. And I got to this theory by my own experiences because I have gone to poker rooms where I have a box and they take my key and I see them struggling and trying to turn, turn, turn. It's not turning. And then I look more carefully and they are trying to open the box next to mine or the right below mine, right above mine. And I go, wait, 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 guys, guys, that's the wrong box. My box is here. It's the one below, one to the right. And then they try it and it works. So I've had that more than once where they try to open the wrong box and I have to stop them. And that the reason it doesn't work is my key is not going to work on somebody else's box. So I thought maybe his key wasn't working and nobody, not him, not any of the staff, stopped to think, wait a minute, maybe we're trying to open the wrong box. Maybe everybody just assumed this had to be the right box and they drilled it open and it was a box that was empty. It was, a, some, it was an unused box. It was a box that someone has no, nothing in at the moment and that nobody's realized yet that they drilled open the wrong box and that's why his key didn't work. So, his, it, so maybe his stuff is all still there and they just opened the wrong box. So I asked. Or they gave it to somebody who had a couple green chips in it and he got the payday of his life and took off with it. That person wouldn't randomly make the mistake for the same box. Well, and also it wouldn't open. Right, but it's been a number of days. And there hasn't been a resolution. Well, let, let, let me get to the rest. Of you. you're, you're jumping ahead a little bit. Let me get to the rest of this. Here. All right. So I said to him in response, and I wasn't trying to be a jerk or anything. I was just making a serious suggestion that he should check into this. I said, is it possible they drilled open the wrong box and your real box is intact? So he wrote back, this is again, like right on public Twitter. I reckon it's possible, but they did get the poker room manager involved, and I assume he did the due diligence on it. So I was pretty surprised, as was some other people with that answer, because I would think after that's happened and, and you're very upset that this has occurred and your stuff's all missing, at that point, like you want to 100% make sure that everything was right, that they were really opening the right box. Uh, like to just say that he imagines that they did the due diligence, that's, uh, I would not imagine anything. I'd want to say, are you sure you opened my box? And go back, I'd run down there right then and check. So I said, 100% go back there and have them verify this. A ton of times rooms have attempted to open the wrong box for me. So I, I think a ton of times is a bit of an exaggeration, but it was definitely at least a few times this has happened to me in my life. So I'm surprised that him not being certain it was the right box, that he didn't drop everything and run down there and, and verify that it was, that he just, oh, I bet the poker room manager uh, got this right. So then same day, about two hours later, so not much of uh, time passing, he wrote, thanks so much to everyone that reached out to help today. There hasn't been any sort of substantial word from Bellagio yet, but I'm hoping that there's just a misunderstanding that gets resolved in the next few days. Appreciate y'all. Then a story came out. Now, this is an old story. This is from 2007, I believe, but it was a story about Bellagio that was told by someone that you know, Brandon. Do you know who it is? About boxes of the uh, Bellagio. No. I'm fading. Tell me. The killer, Pat Cruz, oh, former wow. uh, Neverwin poker I user. he doesn't even live here. He doesn't. This is a story from 07 that he's telling today. Oh, from 07. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. How would I have guessed that name? 
Wow. So I thought maybe you saw it because it's on public Twitter. But Oh, no, no, I didn't. So the killer, who, by the way, is uh, an honest guy, very honest guy, and uh, I don't think he's making this up. He's never been a dramatic person. He's yeah, never Nick been a liar. He's scouted. He's a good guy. Yeah. So um, the killer posted that he actually had the wrong box opened for him when he went to his Bellagio poker box in 2007 and that uh, he, I forgot who it was. I don't have the tweet in front of me, but it was actually someone that he knew of that it was their box. He, he saw some bag in there and it had their name on the bag. That's how he realized who it was. And so it, at first he didn't know it, was, it wasn't his box. And then he saw some bag in there that he knew wasn't his. And then I think it had the person's name on it and he realized what was going on. So he posted that that person was very fortunate that it was him who got that guy's box rather than one of many degenerates that would have stolen. And I agree with that. You know, the killer is a very honest guy. And I I believe that he wouldn't have stolen a penny out of it, uh, as I wouldn't have. If I got somebody else's box, I wouldn't have stolen a penny either. Uh, But uh, there's a lot of people in poker who would. So uh, he told the guy and the guy thanked him profusely. But and, and they rekeyed both boxes. But the question I had for the killer, and I, I didn't expect he'd necessarily have the answer, but my question to him was, how did this happen? How did they open his box with your key back in 07? It should have just not worked. Like what happens to me when they try the wrong box, it gets, the key just doesn't turn. So how did they do it? How did it even happen? It's not like they drilled it open. And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, did you guys ask? Did you two ask how your key worked in his box? And he said, I, I don't really remember the conversation. I just remember we got it rekeyed and I lost confidence in the Bellagio and their boxes. That's what the killer said back. The funny thing is that another name from the past uh, joined in that discussion. Uh, Epistate joined oh, wow. in. And Epistate was giving me a hard time for not trusting the killer and his word. I was like, no, 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 no. I, I totally believe the killer. I just am... Um, wondering like what the Blavio told him then as an explanation for why this happened, because I know if this happened to me, I would say, how's this possible? How could this have possibly occurred? So the only thing I think could be an explanation, this is of course 16 years old, so maybe it's changed since then, but maybe in 07, they didn't have that many permutations of different keys. Maybe the same key could open a few different boxes there and they happened to accidentally open one for the killer that was one that uh, the same key was for. But that's pretty ridiculous. It's not that hard to make keys that are different from one another. It's also possible that the locking mechanism they got is very poor and that uh, a number of keys can open it even if they are a little bit different from each other. So there may just have been some problem with the keys and everything. Uh, but, But remember, in this case, going back to 2023, Mike's key didn't work. So this is the reverse of what happened with Akilla. Akilla, his key worked in somebody else's box. It just turned and opened. Mike's key supposedly didn't work in his own box, and then he found it was empty as well. It's one thing that your key just stops working, and then they drill it and rekey it. Here, it stopped working, they drilled it, and it was empty. So either this wasn't his box, and nobody figured that out yet, or uh, something shady went on there, and either someone had access to his box similar to what happened with Akilla. Someone just got it and, and, and uh, accidentally and just took everything out of it. Or something was done by an insider there who maybe drilled it open. And I, I, you know, I just thought of a way maybe this could be pulled off. 
let's say you work for Bellagio. And I, I'm just guessing here. This is not. Uh, this is just a possible theory. I'm not saying this happened. But let's say you work for Bellagio in that department there, and you have an accomplice who has a box there, and you say, you know what? Come to the. Come to me at such and such time and date and claim you lost your key and we have to drill your box open. And then what I'll do is I'm going to claim I'm drilling your box, but what I'm really going to be doing is drilling somebody else's box and then rekeying it and pretending that we're doing it for you and no one's going to check because we're going to have you claiming that your box is... uh, is inaccessible to you because you lost your key and you need to rekeyed, and probably no one's going to question which box you're actually pulling out to do. And at, at worst, you can claim it was an honest mistake if, if someone sees you doing it. So maybe it was a scam like that. Otherwise, I can't understand what uh, ended up occurring here. Very strange. And he has not tweeted at all. Not a regular tweet, not a reply, nothing. He's tweeted absolutely nothing since that Thanks for everyone trying to help. There's been no word yet. So yeah, Brandon, I agree. This is kind of weird that now we're almost four days later and he hasn't said either that it is his box and like he, he has no update for us, which is kind of weird. I don't he's know. also deep. I mean, not that that would pro- prohibit a tweet, but he's also deep in the uh, 10K dealer's choice. Okay. Well, may- maybe he'll win the money back that they stole from him. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's... Uh, but it is weird that there's been nothing, no update, no... It's been days. I mean, it's not like there's a million, but I don't know. It's strange. Yeah. And, and by the way, this, this tweet got a lot of attention. It has 566,000 views and 84 retweets and 637 likes, the original tweet about this. Now, when it says that, th- those view numbers... Does that count? Is that just unique? Yes, it's unique people. So if I watch, if I go back to the same tweet thirty times, it's not. It's only- well, I should be more clear. It's unique people or people that um, the device has no history of seeing. So let's say I look at this tweet logged in on my computer. Yeah, and then you go to your iPhone. Then you go. To well, no. If, well, if if I go, hold on, if I go to my iPhone logged in then it won't chart it won't count it as another view if i go to my iphone unlogged in then it will so then it'll be two views for one person so it's not actually five hundred sixty-six thousand people but it's 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 hundreds of thousands for sure so that's a lot of views got to this and uh the fact that with all that and of course this makes bellagio look very bad you think they'd want to uh come up with an answer unless something shady really did happen they'd like it to go away so I would. I, that's what's also surprising. If this really is just the wrong box got drilled or something, that uh, of course that's kind of embarrassing too. I guess there's no way for them to get out of this without it being embarrassing. So I, I understand why they're not saying anything, but at least say something to him. Like it's just weird that we're getting no action. But you know, strangely, and I, I don't know Mike at all, other than just kind of seeing him around, and uh, yeah, he has a good reputation as a nice guy. But some people are not aggressive enough when they get screwed like this. Because if this happened to me, and I don't know what Mike's doing behind the scenes, maybe he's being aggressive and just not posting it on Twitter, but if this happened to me, I would be all over them. Not only would I be demanding to know for sure that they drilled the right box and, and demanding that all the footage is given and going to the police and having them get involved and maybe getting an attorney involved, like I would be jumping all over this to 
get to the bottom of what happened and maybe catch the culprit who did it once I determined that there really was a theft. And then also be updating this on social media, especially once you've gotten 566,000 views. That's the last thing the Bellagio wants is for him to continue tweeting about how unsafe it is there. So that he'll really have their balls in a sling if uh, they've fucked up and don't want to help him. So this is the time to jump on it and, and really make them address this. And the, the more they think this can hurt them, if uh, the publicity is bad and if a lot of people are going to see it, the more they're willing to help and make it right. And the more time you just let pass and have people forget about it, that hurts you. So I, I'm surprised that he has not uh, been more aggressive about this. But you know, everybody's got a different personality, and and he may have, he may just have faith that management's working on it and they're going to get back to him. I just I just don't trust anyone in a situation like that, besides myself and and anyone I'm close to. Yeah. All right. Well, Brandon. Yeah, I'm faded. I know. I can tell you're tired. So thank you for joining us here. Well, thank you for having me on, and thank you for letting me speak my mind, and I hope I contributed some. Yeah, you did. You brought up a lot of good things, and uh, I'm sorry I didn't get to fully utilize the uh, the buffet uh, lunch today. I know you are expecting I was going to basically eat half of what was out there. Uh, I don't mean half the offerings. I mean half of all the food, but... Uh, I know I, I didn't live up to my life of the bike reputation of eating five giant plates of food. Well, in about let's see, today's the fifth. Sixteen days from now, our uh, third host here is going to be joining us in Vegas. Uh, you there, Trader Risky? That's right. So maybe we'll we'll hit up a buffet. I don't. Know, we'll do something. We'll have a, we'll have a good time together. You guys are going to be playing. Did you guys have you guys ever played in the uh, seniors together before? Uh, no, I don't think so. yeah, because I, my only time was last year, and Trader Ruski was not there. So otherwise, we we couldn't have. I wasn't yeah. old enough. Wait, Trader Ruski, have you ever played in the seniors before? Yeah, I think twice. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, Trader Ruski, he's got some years on me, so he he got to get there a little bit earlier than I did. Yeah. Well, listen, you guys have a great uh, a great day, and uh, how much longer do you think you got on this fraud show? Oh, I got a while. We haven't moved through these topics very long, but yeah, it's, it's a bi-weekly yeah, show now. It's once every other week, so they're very long. Now, let me say, I don't know if you talked about this, uh, but for those that maybe are just tuning in or might have missed it, what is next on your agenda for the WSOP? I'm going to talk about myself. You've already done that, you said? Or no, I'm going, going to. Not a lot to say, but I'm going to. Now, I don't really know if I missed it. Are you? Did you uh, offer your little normal little <clears throat> sweat at home with me type thing this year or no? I I was put posting updates on my alternate Twitter. No, I mean, did you know? Did you sell pieces? No, I did not sell any pieces, even for the small events. I sold nothing, N- nor did I last Why year. That? What changed? Is something changed in your? Yeah. Thinking? So what happened is that it's a pain in the ass, and I also feel a little pressure to not lose and not in a good way kind of like like i it starts to enter my mind it's not your money but you feel bad about other yeah i start to enter my mind like i want to make this move but what if i make this move and i'm wrong and and i and i shoot it off this way and i and i'm playing with someone else's money you know it's always more than half my own money no matter what but uh, the most i ever sell is 40 percent but still it's 40 percent other people's money and then i start thinking like you know, they're going to think I'm just 
playing recklessly because it's not all my money. And, uh, and then even if they don't think that, like, I feel bad. Like, like I don't want to disappoint other people. It just, it becomes a new thing I have to think about and worry about that it shouldn't be. I just like all the failure, if there is right. failure, to be my own. And with all your wealth, who needs the aggravation? Yeah, I'll, all my wealth here. Well, they say that. I don't listen. I don't know if it's true, but there are some, certain people out there that will swear the day they die that you had a 18 karat gold W at the bottom of your swimming pool. You know, W for what? Tell us. That's yeah. what. I, I, I know people insist this, but the sad thing is, I don't even have a pool. Now, how did that start? The whole what? Tell us gold pool rumor. It was someone who saw a picture and got confused of what they thought they were seeing as the problem. And I, I don't have a pool, and they they were trying now, to. Is there a certain family member that has a carrot gold W? No, it, it, it doesn't exist. It, it was just a confusion. That seems a little. I'll, I'll explain to you later little... what the whole story is. It's some things I can't say fully on radio, but I, I will tell you yeah, that I, I don't have a pool. When you talk about yourself for the World Series part, you should also tell everyone. How 2023 is 2009 all over again, too. Because it really is. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, faces lot of, popping up again. That, were, that, that fucking, did you see, I mean, he didn't, I, I think he, he, yeah, he cashed, but he didn't make a, he didn't make a final table. Do you see who made a semi-deep run in that limit hold'em? A semi-deep run. Uh, someone that, I mean, it's a name that you know. It's just someone who hasn't appeared in years. No, maybe well, not. Eric Lindgren. Oh, I did see that. Yes. Yes. Eric Lindgren. He hasn't, maybe he's played and just hasn't, I, probably not because they'd cover him. I haven't seen him in years. Like, Yeah, know. I haven't either. Yeah, that was interesting. I wonder I, what I, happened with that whole thing. Yeah, and you know what? I was there and I didn't see him. Like, maybe he's changed and doesn't look the same anymore. I, I, I don't know because. Uh, that would help him maybe with the creditor angle. Yeah, it, it may help. Well, I've, I've had that happen with me before, too, where people haven't seen me since the 2000s, and sometimes they don't recognize me, or, or they or when they do, they're surprised because they're still thinking of young me, and they don't realize I'm over 50 now. So I wonder two things about him. I wonder, A, what he's been doing. You know, if he's not playing poker tournaments, you don't hear about him. Obviously, he needs to be producing some sort of income. Like, you know, did he get a day job somewhere? Is he doing like some corporate thing? Like, where has he been for like seven? Yeah, I've wondered. Like, you know and, what I mean? Well, maybe his wife is getting money in some way. It could be from her family. Who knows? Yeah, but okay. And then the second question is: you don't ever even hear what happened. He had all those judgments against him. And all and every court case became news. You know, poker star sued him. Then you never heard nothing more. How yeah, it ended? That's true. I don't know. God, can you imagine? They send you a million, and I, they, I heard, had, they had, they heard, had so much I money. Was, I heard he was making the roasted chicken in Costco. <laughs> Full Tilt had so much money that they were inadvertently shipping extra millions to yeah. people as loans. That's so. Crazy. That was the funniest story where they he, he he gets them to loan him like a million dollars, and then they accidentally send it twice and don't even notice. And they then, just, the, then I mean, this just tells you all you need to know. Then like. I don't know if it was a few days or a few weeks, but whenever it was, when Chris Ferguson, he either noticed it or someone noticed it and brought it to his attention, he kept calling Eric Lindgren and he ghosted him. <laughs> I think he already lost it by then. He, he was just oh, such yeah, a sure degenerate he gambler. He, he, he yeah. shipped him the voicemail. Like, <laughs> like he wouldn't even, that's Jesus. 
what an era. We'll never see an era like that. I don't just mean that. I just mean like with the money flowing and, and you know, and all. And by the way, uh, you know, just because I don't know if I'm sure it's on your list, maybe it isn't. You should talk about the high stakes poker, Tom Dawnhand. Oh, of course I'm going to talk about that. That'll, that'll be during the Hustler segment. That's a long thing I still have to do. Yeah, that's oh, oh geez, okay. Yeah, I've got a lot. To you know, what do you think they do? Like, how do they even? You think they're just going to keep going, like topping it, like two million dollar buying, four million? Like, where do? Where no, in in fact, I think what's going to happen. I think, and I'll talk about it when we get to the hustler segment. But I, I think All there's right. going to be some modifications next year. I think they've learned some things. Oh, you know, what? and one last thing. Uh, this is really, really interesting. I don't, I didn't know what it meant. So you can, you know, talk about it and I'll listen. Or if maybe you don't know. But that Hanson kid, you remember him? Uh, he was tweeting at Durr. And he asked Durr a question that everyone thought was really odd and made no sense. But it was only because that Hanson kid obviously had some inside information, which was a pretense for his question. So he asked, and I don't want to give too many spoilers because you're going to talk about the hand, but most people know anyhow about Durr winning. But so he asked Dirk directly in a tweet, okay, if the fact, okay, so, you know, Dirk had the hand and he had, you know, I think the third, the, yeah, he had the third nuts, but it wasn't even likely because of the way the pre-action, the pre-flop action started that, that Doug could have had, you know, kings or a better full house. Anyhow, so he tanked for a really long time. So Bart Hansen asked him if, it played a role in him tanking the fact that he couldn't get any more money in play because there's something about something to the effect that many people don't know or wouldn't understand, but it's extremely hard to get money in and out of Hustler Casino for these players because they don't have the chips on hand and because of stringent regulations. That's what again. That's what Hanson said. That's his tweet. You can find it. I didn't know what any of that meant. What do you like? I would. You can't wire five million, three million. Why? Why would it be hard to get money in and out? They don't, or they're not allowed. He said to have those sort of chips on hand, only a certain amount. Yeah, I don't know about that either. I I don't know either. um, But though it is interesting, the inability to reload in a cash game really can affect your play. I, I had that on the infamous party poker cruise of 2006. I brought $23,000 on board and there was a 400-800 limit hold'em game, which was great, but obviously uh, 23000 is not a very good role for that game. Especially there was this one Japanese maniac on there who was like a super awful player, but he was also just very wild and you could never put him on a hand. Why... And- even if you just had to guess, would it be hard for someone to wire? If they, you know, if they have the money, of course, two, three, five million, you know, three bullets, four bullets to the hustler for this game. Yeah, I don't know. What, I, maybe it has that? to do with something with which they can receive uh, at these casinos based on state law. I don't know. It could be a lot okay, of things. And, and the last thing I'll, I'll, I want to tell you, it's a feel-good story. If you don't know about it, you can do some brief research and, and read about the articles. If not, you can talk about it next week. Do you know the either? I know Trederuski won't know, but do you know a poker player named John Smith? John Smith is an old heads-up yes. no limit player, and when I say old, I don't mean he's been around a while. I mean he's actually old, and he's all he does is play heads-up no. Yeah, and his specialty is heads-up no limit. 
And usually the only WSOP tournament he plays all year is the 25K Heads Up No Limit. This year he drew he drew Phil Ivy, and he of course he beat he beat Ivy in the first round. But it's such so interesting that there's a seventy almost eighty year old uh, what do they call that oct octogenarian yeah yeah that excels in the heads up fashion that's that's amazing to me yeah and 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 people who don't know him they see they're matched with this old guy and they say oh wow yes. what, what what a draw yes. we we get these young crushers we get this old man this is going to be cake and then they play him and he's tough he beats the lobby. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, but it wasn't even just that he got lucky. It's that he's actually good at heads up no limit. He grinds them down like he's just. He, anyhow, I I kind of remember hearing about him years ago, you know. But then I don't know, fall off the radar. But you know, I guess the fact he played Ivy, like maybe he didn't play the last couple of years because of the pandemic. But he was back this year, and like you know, he's basically a legend. It's just it's a great story. Yeah, and, like, and, and and the players had to learn him over the years. When I say learn him, like they had to learn not to underestimate him when they were paired with this old man. Because since this is the only thing he plays, it's not just that he's old; it's that he's he's not known from other events and he's not known from cash games. So like people, they just see this old guy that's never seen at any other time, and unless they're familiar with who well, he it's is, hard to even prepare for him unless you played him because there's not there's no sample size. Yeah. So and, and apparently you know, he studies throughout the year of how to get better at heads of no limits. The, most, he takes it all very seriously. Most poker players that play a ton of events, I think Doyle, yeah, Doyle was the one that coined this phrase, uh, would say that the saddest day of the year is when you bust out of the main event. But for this guy, the saddest day of the year is when he busts out of the twenty five k heads up. Yeah, and apparently he was like in a very bad mood when when he uh, right because he killed. Yeah, you know, he well he beat Ivy handedly, and then he lost every pot that he was way ahead of on the river to get knocked out in the second round. He should have advanced, but Variance was really against him in the second round, and he was very upset when he left. He stormed off. <laughs> because, well, because then he has, you know, I mean, you know, he's 76. How many more of these does he have? He's like, damn it, I thought you know? this was going to be the one. I thought I'm going to the damn Well, part. that's the other thing. He's finished second a number of times, but he's never won it. He yeah. finished second in what some people say is the hardest event. Like, that's it's crazy. That's it's nuts. All right. Well, I guess we've talked about it. So you don't need to, but I found it fascinating. And you know, if anyone's interested to know more, again, it's John Smith. You can just Google. You know, you'd think there'd be more names, no more poker players named John Smith, but you Google John Smith. He was the only handed mob that comes up. And there's some articles. I don't know, card player, poker, something that recently have, have interviewed him and talked with him. It's it's an interesting read, but. Uh, you know, at first they kind of made fun of him and they trolled him and laughed at him because they just thought it was like a joke almost. And but then they were like, "Holy shit, this guy's like a surgeon! Like he just carves people up." It's just, I mean, it's funny to think that you know you you would sit down or me, you know, Trader Ruski, and we play this seventy-six-year-old, you know, gray, not frail, but you know, seventy-six, and he would likely, in all honesty, all, all honest to enlist the deck, smack us in the face, he'd probably destroy us. Not live and hold them, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, it, it's something you don't expect. You just don't expect to see someone yeah. of that age to be good at that, especially. It's one thing if they've learned how to play in a full ring game and just play tight well, and only I mean, put the I money mean, in well. Barry, but, you know, they're older players. Like, you know, Barry Shulman, for instance, I've played with him. He, you know, he every he doesn't play a lot of tournaments, but he makes seems like a deep run every year. You know, he can he excels at full ring, no limit, but 
heads up, that's such a different beast. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, mean, it's, it is different to, you can't just wait to put in the money good and let people hang themselves. There's just so much more to it with heads up that you have to uh, always right. think about. Do you remember when Negreanu played Polk and, you know, he did all this studying and training and Polk still just washed his hands with him. He just yeah. destroyed him. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, no one's going to say Negreanu is a bad poker. Do you think, last thing I'll say, his, uh, you know, I started, I know I'm not big on this, but I just, you know, sometimes I can't sleep. So I've been, you know, looking at some things on my phone. So I watched, I've never watched it before in my life, but I started watching his blog um, for the first time ever. And he does like a 30 minute a day thing. And, I, you know, I just turn it on for background noise. Anyhow, um, he cashed in the 2,500, oh no, he cashed in the 25,006 max, but it wasn't for a lot. The first event of the series, a high roller, but it was like a min cash. But everything else, he's bricked. And he's also like, you know, I don't know how much this takes effect, but, I, you know, since I've been watching this, I know he plays three or four events every day at the same time, which I still have to think, like, you know, isn't the best. But, you know, besides the fact you're running around back and forth, you know, do this for, you know, uh, for 50, 60 days. He's playing an online event. He's playing the Millionaire Maker. He's playing, you know, a 10K. He's playing a 1500. Do you think uh, he is? And he's already down like, you know, eighty thousand, ninety thousand dollars. And of course, you know, it could all turn around with one tournament. But I guess what I'm asking: Do you think a he is going to have a winning World Series, or he's going to get destroyed again? And b it's kind of crazy to think that. It's been eight years since he's won a bracelet. Uh, do you think he'll win? I mean, obviously anything could happen, but if you had to bet, would you bet that he'd win a bracelet or not this year? I would bet and not, he, and uh, and the fact that he's already in the hole would make him uh, more likely than not now to, to have a losing World Series. Now, it doesn't have to be like last year where he just had this big losing streak and got down big money because he was playing some high, high events, uh, but it can also get in your head where when you're on a streak that you just keep losing and when he got a big score later in the year it wasn't that much later than the world series but it was a different series so he hit like a 3.3 million it was poker yeah it was poker go right yeah. so so that's a different matter so yeah it got him the money back and more and that was great for him but uh that doesn't erase the fact that that the world series of 2022 was a big fail and that's in his head so he comes to 2023 oh, did he get unstuck for the whole series from that one tournament yes yeah, so well he got like 3.3 million so yeah he, he did but oh, I don't remember. yeah yeah so he got more than unstuck but the point is he still has in his head that the world series of 2022 was a big fail and just every time he just w- wasn't winning, and he took all these bad beats, and just nothing was going right. It was, and he played so many tournaments, and he just had a, a shockingly bad series. So it's it can be sometimes hard to get out of your own head when it just seems like every time you sit down, you're going to lose somehow, no matter what you do. So that could no, be. But a f- what I guess I'm saying is, you don't think the approach is he's playing too many things at once to not even fully devote himself and concentrate on it. Now, he said today, I saw on his Twitter, he was claiming he hadn't done this in a long time. In fact, I didn't know he's, he's doing it this year because someone was making reference to how they're going to do this also, Negranu style. And he said, actually, I haven't done that in a long time, but may- maybe uh, this is now the first time he's oh, done he's it in a while. every event. I mean, he's playing every single event. Okay. It doesn't so, matter. So then, then maybe he's just starting with this again this year. But yeah, this will take away from your focus, and uh, that that could be a problem too. So, I, yeah, I don't know. I haven't and been... The other- and the other thing that I, uh, I wanted to say this, I promise, it's the last thing. So he said this on his blog. He, he's 
in I guess in his own way a number of times that I've I've watched disparage the 1500s. Uh, when I say that, I mean $1,500 buying events for two reasons. One being that it's such a grind before you get to the money, and two, the fact it's so cheap, okay, the buy-in. And he's also made clear that when he buys into a 1500 he will, you know, whether it's no limit, anything, he will play absolute garbage, uh, you know, and, and raise and go all in very lightly, do whatever, because he only is, A, playing there for a few minutes, then, but even more important, he has to spin up the stack because then he has to immediately or sometime soon thereafter leave to go back to what his other primary game is. And I guess, so my question is with all that, do you think it's kind of disrespectful and bad in general for the average player that, you know, I mean, I have friends that will save up all year or budget to play like two or three, you know, like mixed events, you know, like, you know, the 15, you know what I mean? That just have, you know, a budget where they're going to pay $5,000 worth of events. And then for someone to be on the receiving end of him playing silly and, and you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm getting at here? Yeah. Disrespecting. Well, I, I see. I don't think it's disrespectful. I, th- I think people just kind of understand that uh, some of these rich pros that they'll just fire or act crazy or, or just uh, uh, m- or make a ton of buy- rebuys or they will, uh, in this case, enter a bunch of events. Well, I guess, and, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I don't think the typical recreational player, while they may think it's a little bit bizarre, the, I don't think they're going to find it disrespectful or really care. Um, he, Something so you're a normal guy, okay? And, and not you, but you know, you're in general, I'm just saying you're a normal guy. And you come here in a fifteen hundred dollar tournament, it's a big deal for you. You you know, all year you've been planning for this. And then you are on the losing end of you know, your aces getting cracked when it's been three bet with him calling with, you know, seven five offsuit. You don't think that leaves a bad taste in your mouth? No, then, it, it's kinda it's, like, you know, if anything. I I go to a restaurant and I'm trying I'm trying to be frugal with what I'm ordering and like, well, do I really need this this uh, the second side here? I kind of like, but I'm probably going to leave some over, and it's thirteen dollars. And then I'm thinking about that, and then the next table there's some guy just ordering every expensive wine and just running up a bill in the four figures, and I'm going like, what the fuck? Like, a, like I don't think, oh, how disrespectful for not caring. Like, I, it's just a different person. I don't care. They can do what they want with their money, and I, I think that's the way most people see it. Uh, I think that it will it may look a little bit weird, but. If, as long as people understand what he's doing and why he's doing it, that he's just trying to fire in many events as possible and win bracelets and get points for player of the year, whatever the goal is here, that uh, they'll understand it without being mad, even if it's something they wouldn't do themselves. Uh, yeah, now, right. may, may, now, maybe some might be a little frustrated if he goes in with trash and then their aces get cracked, but they really shouldn't be. I always say that you shouldn't get angry if someone makes a dumb move and uh, and you get it in good and lose. You can be mad at the circumstance that you lost, but you can't be mad at the person. You, you, otherwise, what you'd be asking for is that people play well against you, which is what you definitely don't want. No, right. I get that part, too. Sure, sure. So, uh, okay. uh, so I don't think that's uh, disrespectful in any way. Now, is it good for him? Uh, I, I think probably not. I think that uh, if you don't have the proper focus in these events, it can really take take away from this. And I, I think, uh, especially if you're struggling at the moment, I think that, and when I say struggling, I don't mean like financially, but if, if he's been, he had a whole year where it didn't go well at the World Series, I would think if he wants to reverse that narrative, I would think it'd be better to focus on each event individually and really bear down and try to play his very best and take, uh, 
do everything he can aside from uh, you know controlling luck, which you can't do, to make sure that he gives himself the best chance to win. That's what I would do if I'm really trying to break a World Series slump, not just fire at everything I can and play several events at once. I think that's just going to leave, leave you with uh, improper focus on all the events. Yeah, makes sense. All right, well, listen, have a great rest of the show. Thank you again for hospitality, your hospitality, I'm sure. I, I know I slowed down the show. You probably would have been close to done by now, but I enjoyed it. Uh, I haven't been around a lot, but I, like I said, I woke up and I was glad uh, I was able to finally. Jesus, I had to call your room. If I didn't call your room, I might not have never gotten on. Well, I would have looked oh. at the text eventually. I check the text every so often. So I would have seen the text. But yeah, it was better you called the room through my uh, Philippines uh, answering service and that they told me what's going on. That's unbelievable. That did. Is that a, do you know, is that, did you know this policy existed? I did not be. You? Nobody calls me in the room ever. They always just call my cell phone if they want to reach me. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's kind of an outdated type of. Yeah, but that's so strange. Like, what do they want? Permission to ring the room? That's yes. So weird. <laughs> they, they call my room to ask if they can connect you to my room. It's so weird. Yeah, that is weird. But I, in a way, it's nice that I have a, like a, a no, call no, screener. No, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, but I think that'd be, I, I don't know. I don't even know how that comes into play. Like, who's calling someone when they don't want their calls? Yeah. I, I, sh- I should be, uh, I should have come with a Colonel Fabersham voice. Uh, well, tell him off with him. I, I do not wish to take phone calls from the likes of him. Off you go. I remember I remember back in the day you would allude to, or people just knew you were at the Rio, and we'd do radio, and your phone would just keep your Yes, yes, I had people. Radio. I, I, I still think of that. When I'm, when I'm at a hotel in Vegas, I think I better not drop hints of where I am, or people are going to oh. prank me during the show. Now you don't have to do it. You have an unpaid, you have an unpaid at least unpaid by you, employee working for you. Yeah. So. I've got a whole Philippines oh, call that, center. Thing, hold on. It wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't be a World Series without any sort of Caesars hotel room fail. I mean, you went through the years uh, through Rio, of course, reporting on it, and you know it doesn't matter. You know, obviously, I've given it away, or it's obvious you're at a World Series property now. Is there any fail with your room so far? Believe it or not, the room itself actually has no fail. That uh, I, I was surprised, but actually, there's. There has not been a single thing that I've either had to call to get fixed or a, an attribute of the room that they didn't follow my instructions about. Because I have a specific request of uh, where it's located. I won't get into all that, but I, I have uh, – it's a regular room. It's not a suite in any – Now, are you in a semi-recently remodeled room or it's an older room? It, it's kind of in the middle, but uh, – like, What would you say, 10 years, 12 years, 5 years? What would you guess the last remodeling is? Yeah, some probably something like that. Just on the ten is the car- carpet worn? No, the carpet's okay. It's 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 like that's kind of like semi recent, but not just like really really recent. Shower pressure work? Well, that's you know, it's hotel think. shower pressure is never great, but uh, but yeah, everything is is at least satisfactory. And I was surprised, and I I, I usually expect some kind of fail. But there wasn't. So yeah. that, but I will tell you something, though. This isn't about the room. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what I'm very disappointed with at the horseshoe when I went to go eat. I was just going to ask you to give us a report on the food situation. I can't believe okay. you said that. that because I, I, people were complaining coffee is $7. Well, this wasn't even about the other. price. Okay, so I, I was with Kev Math, 
and we both walked over to did Nosh. Did you tip him? I did not tip Kev Math. I know there's some people that do that, but that's that's. Uh, I, I don't. I just don't tip people I know through poker. Nor nor should they tip right. me. But I I was with Kev Math, and we went to the Nosh, which I've never been to before. And I I looked at the photo. Wait, what is, is that? A, hold on, for people that don't know, what is that? Well, I'm about to Nosh get to it. Nosh is a restaurant. It's yeah, Nosh, Nosh is a restaurant called N O S H Nosh, and it, okay. if you go to the website for the horseshoe. It shows that Nosh is a deli, and they even show what looks like a, a thick, high pastrami sandwich, which is what you'd expect of a deli called Nosh. I'd expect that to be one of the options there. And uh, and it looked good in the picture. That doesn't always mean anything, but uh, you know, I, I was looking forward to it. I was thinking of having a pastrami sandwich. I was really gearing up to go have one. Walked there with Kevmath, and not only is there no pastrami sandwich... These are not even sandwiches they make for you. They are pre-made sandwiches that they heat up in a microwave. And it's like one of four choices, all of which oh are kind of fail. God. And uh, and then there's some awful pizza that they can heat up for you. There, there's no fryer, so they can't, uh, they can't make French fries or anything like that there. And the place is such fail. This is not a deli. This this is just some little fast sandwich place. I, why they call it Nosh and portray it as a deli, I have no idea. But I couldn't believe it, and it wasn't even good. So, uh, and then we we had this problem. And this is like the World Series kitchen, or is this a Paris? Or no, no, this is just no. This is a regular restaurant at uh, Horseshoe. Oh wow! Yeah, the World Series kitchen is just ridiculously expensive and awful as it always is. But uh, um, Nosh, this is my first time trying to go there, and the sad thing is. I had a memory. Now, admittedly, this is more than 10 years ago, but my last time going to a deli at Bally's, I did go to one, and it was good. It was a it was a deli like you'd expect, and you could get pastrami or corned beef or whatever, and they'd you know, make it right there in front of you, and it was like good. T.I. famously said, you can have whatever you like. Yeah. So I, 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 that's what I was expecting. It wasn't called Nosh back then, but I was expecting it would be the same thing or something very similar. This was not. I don't know why they even call it Deli. And they actually show, go go look at the damn horseshoe page. They show a picture of, of a pastrami sandwich. They're even putting it in the picture, and it's not there. It's not like they were out. It's just not on the menu. You can look at the menu, too. I didn't bother to look at the menu, but it's crazy. And then um, there were a few other problems. Uh, Nosh actually forgot to make my food. I'm just sitting there, sitting there. Kev Math gets his. I'm sitting, sitting. I go, wait a minute. These are pre-made sandwiches. How, how could I be sitting so long? Did you forget to make my sandwich? Uh, sorry, sir. So yes. Toughest to say. <laughs> what was that? I said toughest to say you didn't get a nosh. Yeah. Well, uh, they made. They then they quickly went and, and made it. Um, then there was uh, the usual issue. They have such a hard time taking any kind of food voucher you have. So both uh, Kev Math and I had a food voucher, and they have such a hard time, especially at the beginning of any World Series, knowing how to process these. So um, to their credit, they didn't do as badly as the uh, Bobby Flay Burger at Paris. I mean, there I, I might as well tell the story now. Going back a year, I don't remember what point of the series it was, but uh, I brought one of these food vouchers, and... They're supposed to take it there. Any Caesars-owned uh, restaurant, they're supposed to take it. And this was this is Caesars-owned, even though it's uh, Bobby Flay uh, branded. I'm talking not, not about Nosh now. I'm talking about uh, Bobby Flay Burger in Paris. So 
I order, I give them it, they just cannot accept it somehow. When I say cannot, I mean they cannot find out how to ring it up. They, they could not figure it out, how to use this. And they, they were trying, trying, trying. It's failing. A big line is forming behind me as they're trying to do this. And then she tries to tell me, sorry, I can't figure out how to do this. Uh, you're going to just need to pay. I said, no, you, you're supposed to accept this. If you can't figure it out, then give it to me for free. I'm happy for you to process the voucher as it's supposed to be processed, but the solution, if you can't, shouldn't be that I pay out of pocket because you don't know you don't know how to work it. So, I, and I didn't say it that rudely. I was, uh, I just said, no, I can't. You know, you, you need this needs to be figured out here. If you either accept them or you don't. If you accept them and you don't know how to do it, then you um, you, you should just give it to me or or uh, get someone over who can do this. So, anyway, she was getting more and more irritated with me because she just wanted me to give up on the voucher and either leave or pay out of pocket. And I just refused. I just politely refused and said, this is not my responsibility to pay. If you can't figure out how to take it, I'm, you know, then you're just going to have to give it to me for free. So we get into the standoff there. Fortunately, I can watch the food being made. So I didn't have to worry about my food being spit in. But I did stand around and watch afterwards. <laughs> I didn't go walk off and, and come back. But uh, she wasn't the one making it. But But still. Anyway... We have the standoff, and more and more people keep backing up in that line as this is taking forever. And I keep suggesting, you know, why don't you just comp it? I mean, there's a big line backing up here behind me, you know, making all these people wait. She wouldn't give up. She kept saying, uh, and she, she didn't speak all that good of English. She kept trying to tell me, pay, pay, pay. I just said, no. She kept saying, we don't take this here. I said, yes, you do. I even showed her on it, you know, that, that they should. And uh, then she brought someone else over for help. They, they still couldn't get it working. The person who came over for help it, you know, did acknowledge that it should be able to take, and this is a problem on their end, and that there's something they don't know how to enter, but they just wouldn't give up. They wouldn't just comp it. I don't know why they didn't just say, okay, fine, we'll figure this out later. Here's your burger. Goodbye. Instead, they, they wanted to make this my responsibility, and I said no. So I stuck to my guns, politely, but I stuck to my guns, and uh, they finally, after a ton of effort, figured it out and took it. So they... I could tell she hated me. She absolutely hated me. And I could tell she a lot of disdain for me for not giving up on this. But, you know, I watched them make the food and they gave me my burger and it was fine. I, I didn't complain to anyone about this. I, uh, it took a lot of extra time, but uh, I didn't complain to anybody. But I, I, at the same time, I was not going to back down on this. I was not going to leave, nor was I going to pay when I had the voucher that they're supposed to take. But fast forward to 2023, a year later, we didn't quite have that type of issue but they did have a hard time figuring out how to take it again. Uh, now, the good thing was, at least the woman who was running the cash register here at Nosh knew what it was right away and that they should take it. At Bobby Flay last year, they had no clue what this was or how to take it or that they do take it. And that's why she was especially pushing back at me, thinking maybe I was wrong, that they don't well, take it. That was the Matha Rat Meal. That, now, that was a different myth story. The Matha Rat Meal was that he had a $150 food and beverage credit at Harris. And then at the end of the meal, which we carefully ordered everything to equal $150, they break us the bad news that they can't, that for some reason it's not working and they can't explain it. And they wanted us to pay it the same thing. And so again, we stood our ground and said, no, it turned out after a lot of time researching it, they figured out that because he had disabled room charges, that it means you also cannot use a, room credit a, a room food credit even though you're really not technically charging anything 
but it took like 25 minutes for them to figure that out. And uh, but but yeah, their solution at the time was we just pay it, and we said absolutely not. Said, oh, just charge it to the room and, uh, and have a host comp it off. Like no, that's, we're not doing that. We, this is a, a food credit he has that you're supposed to accept. So it was the same. It was kind of similar, but uh, this was a physical voucher here last year and this year. But at least this year they knew what it was. They just couldn't figure it out. But then it was also faster. Maybe they took five minutes this time to figure it out. So there's a lot of disorganization over there too. But but e- even if there wasn't a disorganization. It's just not good, and the, and the menu sucks. Like, why don't they have that regular deli? What, what happened to that? How, how come 10 years ago the food was so much better at the same place? I don't know if the location's the same. I forgot exactly where, where in Bally's it was. So, other than that, though, what have you been doing for food? Well... Like, you know, are you leaving the property? Like, well, And not just asking for me, but people want to hear, you know, that they're going to be coming there, maybe. What are you, you doing for food? For the most part, I've I've been uh, staying here. Well, I, I I went to a, a buffet. Some some guy yesterday uh, took me to a buffet uh, with right. his comp, and uh, I was disappointed. Funny. I didn't eat as much as he expected, but uh, I, I I didn't think I was there to put on a show. But all right, uh, I'm glad he comped me. Though. That was nice of him. Uh, a day before that, I went with a listener to a uh, place off property, a uh, actually a, a fast food place. And uh, what place was it? Was it, it was uh, Raising Canes? And okay, he, he, yeah, he had never been to he'd never been to one. But here's the interesting thing: it's not about Raising Canes itself. I saw something happen that I've never seen before. Driving back, and there was construction in the area, but this shouldn't have affected it. Driving back, we get a green arrow to turn left, and yet the cars coming the other way are just driving straight as if there's no green arrow. So if if we followed the green arrow and turned, we would have been slammed into by like 10 cars. Yeah. That was on the strip, I assume, right? No, it was on uh, Tropicana. Oh, wow. And we were both wow. sitting there feeling like we're in the twilight zone. We're like, what? <laughs> what is with this arrow? It's just like sitting there, this arrow that you can turn left, and yet everybody can just zoom through the other way. So thankfully, I noticed but uh, and then we we so I said okay well what do I do here so I waited another cycle for the light and this time the arrow came on and I was so nervous <laughs> to start going but I noticed they were all stopped so I I was okay this looks safe so at that point I went and it was okay so I have no idea what happened with that arrow I wish I wish I had pulled my phone out to take a video of it fast enough but I, by the time I I thought of doing that it had changed but that was so weird just sitting here seeing that green arrow where if you follow it, it would slam. And uh, I wonder what a self-driving car would do in that spot. If a self-driving car was, is counting on the traffic light to direct it, would it run you right into that? I don't know. I don't know if it looks itself to see if there's something coming or if it trusts what these uh, traffic lights tell it to do. That's why I don't trust these things. Anyway, uh, Eric should have one of his associates just sitting there on a beach chair, just waiting for all the accidents to happen in the cards. <laughs> yeah, except uh, except Eric can't uh, practice law here in Nevada. That's the problem. He's, he's uh, uh, he can do fe- he can do federal and he can do term. California. He doesn't he doesn't uh, have a license to practice in Nevada. But uh, otherwise, that wouldn't be a bad idea. So, if anybody's listening who who works for the city. Uh, go take a look at that light. It's Tropicana, and I think it's uh, it's it's before you get to the strip and before you get to the freeway. It's the last light before that. So anyhow, the point is that you're doing what you normally do in the past, having PFA radio listeners and 
users buy your meals for. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like a joke, but I actually take personal pride in spending as little as possible on hotel and food expenses when I'm at the World Series. I, I, I cannot tell you how good I am at keeping these expenses down. And so I appreciate those who come to town and who appreciate the show and, and uh, want to take me out or anything. This helps towards that cause because I try to find every way possible. And I don't do anything illegal or anything. I'm not saying I steal food or anything. But anything that is possible that is uh, ethical and legal to do that saves me on, on food or room costs, I, I will do. Including, like, let's say the, the place I'm staying is suddenly going to get expensive for the weekend. Like, way more expensive. I don't mean a little bit more. But, like, if it's going to suddenly get way more expensive, I'll sometimes see if there's somebody who has two nights at a different property and I'll actually move for those two nights and then move back just to avoid this. So uh, I, I will do these things to keep my costs down. So at least if I lose at the World Series, at least I'm not both losing and, and spending a lot of money to be here. And sure. it's, it's different than other traveling. When I do other traveling, there I will spend money. I, I don't, I'm not just throwing money all over the place, but there it doesn't bother me to spend. But uh, I don't see this as like a trip or like a vacation. It's- so do you set like an over-under drop and, and then has somebody come through with a comp at the end that just kept you under? Last meal, Matt the Rat takes you out to lunch <laughs> well, so you don't go over? Okay, so I, I want to I be clear for the listeners who have taken me to any kind of meal over time here, including recently, um, I, I want to start off by saying I don't expect anything out of anybody, and I fully appreciate it. every time someone gives me anything here. I really do appreciate it, even if it's a comp. Like I, a lot of people have a flippant attitude about comps, like "Oh, they're going to comp anyway." No, I, I never think of that. I, anything that you have, you've earned it in some way. So if you're going to share it with me, I appreciate that very much. Or if you spend real money, I, sp- I appreciate that, of course, as well. So I, I don't think anyone owes me anything. So anyone who does do anything. Uh, that I very much appreciate, and I just want to let everybody know that I'm, I'm not just bullshitting. That's really how I feel as I'm out with these people. But um, I don't try to plan it in any way. I just do whatever I can within reason to keep the costs very low. Also, when I'm not going with other people, when I'm by myself, I will eat cheaply as well. If, I, if it's food, I don't have a, some kind of comp or voucher for, or, or offer for, then I will just eat very cheap things. And so you know, I, I keep the expenses as low as I can, because it can add up. You're here a lot of days, it can add up. That's it. So I, I guess I have to give credit to this particular Caesars property, the secret location, for not only not having maintenance issues in the room, but also for giving me the exact thing I asked for. And uh, there's one bone I have to pick, though, a slight bone. The thermostat, what do you think the lowest temperature you could set the thermostat is? 70. Well, it's not quite that bad. It's it's 68, which I think is shitty, because if it was a real 68, fine. I wouldn't want the room 68. That's too cold. But the problem is what the thermostat says and what the room actually becomes the two different things, especially it depends on uh, if the sun is beating down on the room, 
even with the curtains closed, there's a lot of factors that go into this. So you always want to be able to set it lower to account for these differences. So I like it when you can set it all the way down to 63, 62. Now, a lot of times I don't because if I wouldn't want the room to be 63, it'd be awful. But sometimes setting it to 63 is what actually makes the room 70. So this room will only go to 68, and I've never seen that at this hotel before. I've been here before. I've never seen one that only goes down to 68. And I have had a little bit of trouble where the room gets hot because I haven't had it on for a while, and then I'll turn it back on, and uh, and it can't get cold enough because of the 68 nonsense. That's the only little issue, but it hasn't been enough to where I've had them come up here and look at it. And the reason I think look at it is I I haven't seen any of the thermometers here. I haven't seen the thermostats here behave this way except this one. And I've been to other rooms here, and I've never seen any other hotel that restricts it to 68 as the lowest temperature. It's very weird. Thermostats right, at hotels are, are always difficult. You know, like they always... Yeah. It's so hard to get the room the right temperature. It's always like hot or cold, no matter what you try. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. All right, good night, guys. Have a great or good morning. Have a great end of show, and uh, I'll see you both in about seventeen days. Yeah, sixteen days. Okay. Right. Talk to you later, Brandon. Thank Thanks you. for joining Bye. us. Freddie Ruski, is your uh, five fifteen meeting uh, coming? They all just got on the Zoom, so I do have to bail. But okay. I'll be back after. Okay. Talk to you soon. But- Wow, everybody just ditches me at once. All right, well, at least I can get through topics faster. That's the only good thing about having no co-hosts. I like having co-hosts better than not having co-hosts, but the only one upside to no co-hosts is I can get through topics quicker. Though when I say quicker, I don't mean quickly. I'm never fast at covering topics, as you guys know. What happens is then conversations start. When I'm by myself, I can't have a conversation. So then I just have a monologue. It's a lot faster. But when people can ask questions and interact with me, then the whole thing slows down. Okay, so I want to talk now about the three events I played. And it's not going to be a long subject, which I'm sure you can guess what the reason is for that. And that is because I was not at the events for a very long time. So... I showed up actually early morning of June 1st, and I drove overnight. By the time I got into Vegas, it was light. Of course, it gets light very early in Vegas in June. So that was the day of the Limit Hold'em event. So right when I got into the hotel, I went to sleep, and I always look forward to the 1500 Limit Hold'em event, because that was the very first World Series of Poker event I ever played. First time I ever played an event was in 05. I had been playing poker for over four years by that point, but I didn't play tournaments. So it was my first uh, World Series of Poker event. I'd never played a limit tournament before. I really didn't play tournaments. Here I was, my first World Series of Poker event, and I finished third out of 1,049 people for $116,000. That was my introduction to the World Series, and it was a very nice start for me, as you might imagine. So there's been a soft spot in my heart for that event, but unfortunately, I've been kind of cursed with it. Ever since then, not only have I not equaled or beat that third-place finish, I haven't even come close. I just cannot get deep in that event. So I just seem to bust that event year after year after year. 
Occasionally, I'll min-cash it. I think it was in 2015, either 15 or 16, but I think it was 15. It looked like I was going to finally get that monkey off my back. And I was the chip leader with 40 people left. And that's 40 out of like 700 entrants. So looking very good here. Obviously, that's no lock that you're going to win or even final table it. But the chip leader with actually it was 42 left that I had. I remember 42 left. And not only was I the chip leader with 42 left, I was dominating the table in a way that I just felt I couldn't lose as long as I didn't run bad. I had a great feel for everybody's play styles. Even the good players there. I was very good at doing the exact right thing. I knew exactly when they were going to bet, and I would check-raise them when I thought I had the better hand, and I always seemed to be right. I was just, I was really on. I was playing extremely well. I was playing my A game for sure. And I just had such a good feel for everybody, and my style matched very well with those at the table, meaning that it worked well against them. So it was the perfect situation for me. And then I heard the words I did not want to hear. Can the big blind come with me, please? I was the big blind. They were moving me to a different table. I sit down. First hand, I get dealt aces. And I lose in a small blind, big blind confrontation against the suited ace that made a flush on the river after that person put in too much action against me. And then I kept making top pair and losing two pair and losing just whatever good hand I thought I made, I would lose, 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 lose. And I was out of the event in 40th place when I was chip leader with 42 people left in a limit event. Shows you how bad I ran at the new table. But as soon as I sat down with the aces and lost them on my first hand, it was like all the fears I had got confirmed that moving tables was going to ruin everything. And I've had the reverse. I've had it where I'm getting crushed at a table and then I get moved to a new one and then it just everything turns around. Not only is the luck better, but just my whole attitude's better. It just feels like I have a new start. This was the reverse. This is where they took away something that was good. But that was the only time since then that I really have even had some real hope of making the final table again. All the other times I've either min-cashed or busted. So I was hoping this year would be different. And I came to the event, and it was not different. In fact, I never got above starting stack except once very briefly I got like a tiny bit above starting stack and then fell right back again. So I just started off losing and it never really changed and I ended up being the first one to bust from my table. So that was unfortunate. Now it's better than making day two and not cashing which can happen in that event. So at least I didn't waste a lot of time there. I wasn't out right away because it's a limit event and the beginning of it isn't that meaningful. But, yeah, it was not very competitive in that one. And the funny thing was, it wasn't really from bad beats. I really didn't have a bad beat issue. I just was having a ace-king miss all the time and making second-best hand all the time issue. And I wasn't playing super wild or anything. I just was not hitting the right way. I was either hitting and being behind or missing. And then someone always had something when I missed one of those 
things and it limits you. You can't just run people off hands. So, okay. The only good thing about busting day one was that I could play the next day's event, which I also wanted to play, and that was 1500 Stud. Some of you don't know that I do play Stud. It's more of a newer development. I, I didn't used to play Stud, but I decided to expand my horizons and play some other games. You guys know I've been playing Omaha for a number of years now, but uh, Stud was one I wasn't playing, but uh, I learned Stud, and uh, I've been playing it at a home game I go to sometimes, and uh, I've studied some about Stud play, so yeah, I put some work in to become a competent Stud player. I will say I don't play a ton of it, so my real-world experience playing Stud, I don't have that many hands under my belt, but Stud High is not that complicated of a game, to tell the truth. So you you basically have to have the fundamentals down. You have to understand the trap situations with it and not to get into them, especially ones that will often get Hold'em players to do stupid things that in Hold'em would be right, but in Stud would be wrong. So you have to watch out for that as someone who plays Hold'em a lot. But you get all these things down, and you, and you have to remember to pay attention to all the discarded up cards, so you remember what's out of the deck. And you got to have all that in mind, and you have to pay attention a lot more than you do in Hold'em to what's going on, at least any hand that you're involved with. Last year I played the 1500 Stud World Series event for the first time, and I really liked it. And I actually felt there were a lot of uh, people who were not very good and didn't know what they were doing. Unfortunately, I just didn't run well. And I was out by, I think, right before the dinner break. I, I didn't last that long, but I wasn't like one of the really early people out, but I didn't come close to cashing. But I said, okay, I enjoyed this. I'm going to come back next year and play stud again. So here's next year. I thought, okay, just got to run better this time, and it'll be nice. Well, the first problem was I didn't get a good table draw. Most people at the table were competent at the game. There was some difference in the play style. Some people were better than others, but there were no outright fish at the table who were making egregious mistakes. And that's different than what I had last year, where there were people that were really making big mistakes that were destined to bust unless they ran super hot. And I wasn't getting that at my table this year. I, I was at the same table the entire time. But much like the Limit Hold'em event, the entire time was not that long, because once again, I was the first busted for my table. I was not being dealt many playable hands, so I was pretty card dead. One strange coincidence was that both last year and this year, I started off card dead for the first 40 minutes or so, and then got dealt a rolled-up hand. Last year, it was uh, rolled-up kings, which means you have pocket kings in the hole, and then a king showing. And then this year is rolled up fours. And those are not common hands. It's, in fact, uh, I think twice as hard to get a rolled up hand in stud as it is to get pocket aces dealt to you in hold'em. So it's funny, in the first hour, right around the same time in the first hour is when I got the rolled up hand both years after having basically nothing. But not only was I not getting dealt many playable hands, but also I was not getting any kind of draws. Forget making draws. I wasn't even getting promising draws to where I could play them aggressively and hope to knock people out and just win the pot uncontested. 
or maybe make some of these draws and win some nice pots. So the very best hand I made the entire time was three of a kind. And then not only did I not make a straight or a flush, I didn't even get an open-ended straight draw or a four flush draw at any point. Can you believe that? I never had a point where I was drawing for the fifth card to a flush or drawing to an open-ended straight. So the problem would be I'd be dealt something promising like uh, five, six, seven, all of hearts, and then it would just go nowhere. So this would just grind me down. I didn't lose any huge hands. It just ground me down between not getting many playable hands and not even any kind of stealing hands. Instead, if you're dealt a high up card, you can sometimes steal the whole pot because people don't want to face something like an ace that's uh, up when you come in and what's called completing, which is kind of like a raise. If you're the first one in or the first one completing and you have something like an ace or a king up, a lot of times people will just fold or you can bet them off after the first betting round. They'll fold. But aside from that, I just wasn't getting anything playable or even giving the false appearance of being playable. I didn't even have many high up cards that I could pretend were uh, paired with something that was good in the hole. So I did steal some pots that way, but I just didn't get enough going on to where I I just couldn't make enough hands or enough uh, hands that could scare people into folding to where I was able to hold on to chips. So the entire time I was short stacked and eventually I busted. So I first one off that table too. (laughs) Again, neither event was I the first one to bust, but I was the first one to bust at my table. Okay. Well, then I have... Another event, by not making day two with a stud, I had an event on June 3rd I wanted to play. That was the Mystery Millions. The Mystery Millions is the one where I thought you, there's a bounty the whole way, and then Lee Bradbury corrected me and <laughs> told me, no, it's actually only on day two. But it's a turbo no-limit event, and if you make it to day two, of which only about 5% of the people do of each starting day, then... There's what's called a mystery bounty. Every time you knock someone out, you get a ticket, and the ticket will range in value from $1,000 up to a million. Last year, Matt Glantz won the million. This year, it was won by someone who I've never heard of before. So it's just kind of a coincidence that someone who's known in poker won it last year. And also someone who happens to listen to this show, by the way. Matt Glantz is a regular listener to this show, so... Hi to Matt, and I'm sorry he didn't win it this year. Matt got deep in the event this year, by the way. But he did not get the million. Anyway, the way it works there is you, the ticket, uh, if it's one that is going to give you less than 10000 then it just shows you what your award is and you get it. I think it comes up on the screen. But if it's 10000 or more, then you get the right to go up there and draw a slip out of a drum that they spin. And you basically draw whatever your prize is going to be. And the worst you're going to get at that point is 10,000 and the most is a million. So you want to be able to go up to the stage and do that. This is a very popular event. And I'll talk a little bit more about it later when we do the remainder of this World Series segment. But it basically has replaced the early 
no limit event that they used to have here. They used to have like a $500 opening big field, no limit event. This has replaced it, even though this is a thousand dollar buy-in and it has a massive field because it was very successful last year, but they knew if they had it earlier this year, and this was kind of like the big first event, everybody plays, it will do even better. And it did. So they have, this is a very, very popular event. So anyway, how did I do? Well, again, didn't get off to the best start. But then I, I ran it up a little bit. And then it ran back down. But I, I was never, like, killing it. And I also wasn't busting. But it was a turbo event. So you've got to accumulate chips pretty fast or you start getting short stacked. And since I couldn't go anywhere, and I wasn't playing too tight or anything. In fact, at the beginning, I was the loosest player at the table. Part of it was because I was being dealt a lot of hands, and part of it was just uh, everyone was being kind of tight, and I was just uh, taking advantage of that and running people off hands. So that that was going well. When I said at the beginning, um, I actually meant, like, after that beginning where I was aggressive. When I was aggressive, it was actually working, and I was uh, running up chips kind of slowly, but I was kind of building up by just winning a succession of pots. Uh, the problem was I lost two real hands. I lost with jacks and... Uh, I think Ace-King or something, so those both cost me some back. But anyway, I was never killing it, but I was never, like, way short-stacked either. And uh, I made it to the third break, so we had played uh, six hours by that point. And that was actually the farthest I've made of any event. And we weren't that far from the money. We weren't like on the bubble or near the bubble, but we weren't that far from the money at that point because it's a turbo event and the blinds move up very fast. Anyway, I had 52K, which was well below average by that point. I don't know what the average was, but I th- my guess is it was probably like low 100,000s. You start with 40. So I was at 52. So I was above starting stack, but I was well below average because a lot of people had been eliminated already. And the blinds were big enough to where I was pretty much in a shove or fold situation, which is an easier way to play. doesn't require a lot of skill. You just got to have an idea of when to go in and when not to. But of course, there's a lot of variance to it. So a player opened a middle position and the player had opened to 13K, which is standard for what the blinds were at that point. I had 52k on the button, folded to me, ace-king. Well, I think all of you know what the move is at that point. So I went all in with the ace-king. And I thought I'm going to be running it out with a guy in middle position because he had a lot of chips and he knew I didn't have a lot of chips and the correct thing with any non-trash hand would be to call, even with hands that aren't that great. So I went over on him, but something happened that I didn't expect the big blind snap all in over me with a bigger stack than mine. Not a huge stack, but, you know, that guy probably had like 90 or 100. So then the original Razor snap folded. So he could have had a wide range of things. Obviously, it was not any kind of premium or semi-premium hand because he didn't even think about it. He just folded super fast. But, you know, he could have had pocket fours. Who knows? It was something where he didn't want to run it out against two people for like 90 or 100K. So that was it. Flip the cards over. I see the guy in the big blind has ace-jack. Okay, that's nice, right? 
I've got ace-king, he's got ace-jack. He was ace-jack suited, but I was looking pretty good there. I just had a feeling, though. I just had a feeling I'm going to get fucked on this one. Sure enough, right away, first card I see is a jack. So the flop was like jack-10-3, and I needed, obviously, a queen or a king. The queen would make a straight. The king would be top pair. Didn't want an ace because that would have given him two pair over my one pair. Anyway, went uh, brick, brick, turn in river, and that was that. I was gone. So, got three outed all in. Had I won that hand, I would have had 120K, which was right around average. And we weren't that far from the money. So, I'm not saying that it was a guaranteed cash, but I'm also saying I had a decent chance of cashing at that point, had I won that hand. So, that was it for me. Now, you can rebuy in that. There would be no point to rebuy right then because I'd come back with 40k and have to shove again. But it didn't matter because I was not planning to rebuy this. Maybe it was past, you know what, it was past the rebuy. I think it was. Well, it doesn't matter because I wasn't going to rebuy. I came in willing to invest one and only one thousand dollar bullet in this event. And I did and I lost and it was frustrating, but uh, that's the way it goes. So those are my three events I've played so far. Not exactly a fun time with any of these three. Two of them I'm out first at the table, and the third one I make it uh, sort of close to the money and then bust to a three-outer. The only thing I can say is it's not like I was crushing the event and lost some huge pot to a three-outer. It was that uh, I was short-stacked, and had I won an all-in, I would have been about average-stacked, and it was a three-outer. So, 0 for 3. Now, I'm not down huge. It was $4,000 invested total in these three events, two fifteen hundreds and 1000 But we'll see. Hopefully, I will uh, have a deep run at events I play going forward. Sorry, I don't have better stories for you, but, you know, <laughs> didn't play that much. And we're still early. Though, as I said, I'm going to be missing a lot of the World Series as well. All right, so I guess I might as well transition to talk about the mystery bounty event. So I've already described it in the last segment that this is an event where it's $1,000. It does have rebuys. It had four different starting days, May 31st through June 3rd. They had this event last year for the first time. It was not one of the early events, but it did so well. They decided to make this the kind of big, open, no-limit event that they have at the beginning of the World Series. The reason everybody likes it is because of the mystery bounty aspect, which unfortunately you don't get to until day two. So only about 5% of the people ever get a chance at that. But at least you know if you make it to day two that you have a chance at this and then you could just luck into a million bucks the way Matt Glance did last year. And that every bounty is a minimum of $1,000. That's the buy-in, so that's nice too. So this format has become very popular, and it's a turbo event, so there is a lot of luck to this. The blinds go up very fast, and yeah, there's some skill to turbo events where you have to play aggressively enough to accumulate chips, and you can't just sit around forever waiting for the best hands to come to you, because then uh, you're going to get ground down from the rapidly escalating blinds. But the turbo events also make it to where there's a lot of luck to it. The main event 
of course, will take place in July. That's the opposite of a turbo. That one has slow-moving levels that go up once every two hours. This had uh, levels that only last a half an hour, and they also skip some levels that the World Series main event has. So they're two completely opposite events in structure, and that's why people fall out of them so fast, This uh, these turbo events. So I don't love turbo events. Uh, I prefer events where I can take advantage of people making stupid mistakes and hanging themselves. And and sometimes they do with turbo events too, but it's easier when you have more time to wait for that to happen. And I don't necessarily mean play really tight. I just mean knowing when to get the money in and when not to. And at turbo events, then uh, you can't, really do that. I should ask Matt Glantz's approach because he's made it pretty deep both years. I'm not a turbo event expert by any means. But anyway, this is still a very popular event and I bet they're going to open with it next year. Day 1D, the fourth starting day, took place on Saturday, June 3rd. I knew it was going to be the big starting day for two reasons. Number one, it's a weekend, so there's a lot of recreational players in this event, and some of them don't have time to take off work, so they can fly in on Friday night and play it on Saturday. And second, it is the last starting day, so people who had been firing on other days, this is their last chance to fire again, and a lot of people just like waiting to the last day anyway, because they don't feel like waiting a bunch of days in between before getting to day two. So people just love this uh, last day in general. And the policy apparently about cashing on the other days, because remember, you reach the money before the end of the day on each of the starting days. It's not even just the day ends when you reach the money. You reach the money and you keep you play on for a while until there's like 5% of the field left. So... What do they do about that? Let's say you enter day 1A and you make the money and then you make it to the end of the day, but you don't like your stack. Let's say you're super short stacked. Can you say, you know what? I want to forfeit my stack and come back and play another day. Well, yes and no. Yes, you can forfeit your stack, but you also have to forfeit the prize money. So you cannot collect any money. You have to call it a loss as if you busted on the first hand, if you want to do that. However, if you busted in the money and want to come back and play the next day, you can, and then you can keep the money. That's kind of weird. I actually don't agree with that policy. I think that if you've made the money and you want to forfeit your stack, it shouldn't require that you bust your stack. It should just be that you can forfeit it and get the money for whatever the cash would be at that point, almost like you're intentionally busting, and then enter the next day. It's kind of a weird rule. Maybe they'll change it next year. So the only way you can continue to play if you've cashed is if you actually busted, unless you want to just forfeit what you have and not collect any money for how far you've gotten, even though you're in the money already. So you actually can cash in this event four times in the same year, which is kind of weird. You can see on people's Hendon Mob, four entries for the 
mystery bounty event of 2023 at the World Series. That wouldn't be common. Usually if someone's made the money, they are not going to be able to do it every single time out of four times and bust without making day two. Because you'd have to both make the money and bust before you get to day two. So that probably wouldn't happen four times. So I wonder if it did for anybody. It's a huge field. But to tell you how huge the field is, they got over 18,000 entries. I don't know how many of these were unique individuals and how many were rebuys. And on the final day, it was 8,000 of it. So it was about 10,000 combined for the first three and 8,000 on the last day alone. Now, I can't speak to the first three days, but since I played on the fourth starting day, I can speak to how many individuals there might have been there. Because when I showed up at the beginning of it, there were already 5,000 entrants. So these were not people who had rebought that day. These may be people rebuying from other days. But that day, right at the beginning of that day, these are all unique individuals, obviously. The rebuy comes in when someone busts early in the day and decides they're going to rebuy. So the number eventually went up from 5,000 to 8,000. But it was at least 5,000 individuals and probably around 6,000 is my guess. So that's a lot of individuals playing on one day. Most of the people were playing in the horseshoe, but they also had some playing in Paris. And I will say they did pretty well as far as the way they ran it. They did have to have some long breaks. The second break was 40 minutes instead of 20 minutes. And the third break was 30 minutes instead of 20 minutes. And these were both breaks where they were coloring up chips, where they were taking the hundreds off the tables and the 500s off the table. So they needed extra time for that. I don't know if maybe they could have kept these shorter, but I, I guess they felt they needed the extra time because of the massive field. So, okay, whatever. But aside from that, they did well. I, now, I heard when they got in the money, they did have to halt at least one of the days. Maybe it was 1D. I think it was 1D. They had to halt it so they could manage the payouts better because it was starting to get out of control and noticing how many people were left. So they can still improve on that. But aside from that one issue, I thought they did a very good job with this giant field event. Now, I'll tell you, you can't register anymore. The event's not over yet, but you can't register anymore. It's deep into it at this point. But for this or any other large field event, you do not want to show up on the day of the event and register because there will be a tremendous line. And then sometimes, like on this day 1D, where they just don't have enough room for everybody, you have to get in line until someone busts and you can take their seat. So basically, you're in like an alternate line. So you don't want these situations. It can take forever to get a seat. So what you should do is register beforehand. And there's various ways to do it. You can do it through the uh, the kiosks, and uh, you can do it by just coming at a time when there's not going to be a line, like at late at night or really any time at night the day before. But come prepared. Come already registered. Or come to where you already have money loaded in your Bravo account, which you can do with the cashier, and then use the kiosk to register, which there's no line for. But then even if you do that same day, you'll still have the problem of waiting for a seat. So you really want to have a seat assigned to you and fully register the day before the event or earlier than that. So I did that. I, I did it at night the day before, and I had a seat already. So I didn't have to deal with any of that waiting bullshit. 
So, yeah, it was a successful event, and the million dollar has already been given away. There's also a top prize this year, which is higher than last year because the field's bigger. Last year, one thing that did happen was that Matt Glantz was the biggest prize winner, even though he didn't win the event, because the top mystery bounty prize that he won was, as I told you, one million dollars. But unfortunately, the first prize for winning this gigantic event, the gigantic field that is, was like 700-something thousand, which was a little bit ridiculous that the top bounty was better than the first prize. So this year with this huge field, they were able to not have that occur. So now the million-dollar prize is also for winning the event outright. They are considering for next year to put $2 million bounties. I don't mean $2 million. I mean two separate million-dollar bounty tickets in because they feel they will have enough of a field to justify it. They'll have enough of a field to fund that, basically, where it doesn't take too much from the other bounties. So, yeah, people are calling it a circus event. Even Matt Glantz is calling it that, even though he won a million bucks from it. But people are saying it's kind of a gimmick event, a circus event. But I will tell you that people play it. People like it. People are happy it's there. It's a very successful event. It's fun for people. So that was a good addition last year. And it's good they've moved it to a more prominent part of the series. They did not invent this at the World Series. Other rooms were doing events like this. It may have been the wind that first did this. I'm forgetting which one did it first. The World Series did not come up with it first, but since it's the World Series, that's uh, it's really been popularizing this format, and you're seeing it more and more around the country. We already talked about John Smith at the Heads Up 25K event, but there's another prominent player who was in the Heads Up 25K event, Who might you be able to think of who is known to be a very good heads-up, no-limit player who might have an interest in playing the 25K heads-up, no-limit event? Might it be one Douglas Polk? Yes, that's exactly who it was. So Doug Polk, who has been kind of pushing away from the World Series in recent years. He said he just doesn't enjoy it. One year, he infamously got social media bullied into playing the main event. I'm not even kidding you. He claimed that he didn't want to play and was pressured by his fans to go play anyway, and then went there, felt depressed, played awful, and was out early on day one. And these were his words, not mine. I'm not guessing here. He went and told that story on Twitter. So, you know, he's he's not big into the World Series, and he doesn't live in Vegas anymore. He lives in Austin, Texas. I wasn't sure if he was going to even come for this, but he does love Heads Up No Limit, and many believe he's the best Heads Up No Limit player in the world. So he came for the event, and he didn't disappoint. He made it very deep. In fact, he made it all the way to the final two. So he was playing Heads Up for the bracelet in the 25K No Limit. I'm sure he would have really liked to have scored that there. But unfortunately for him, he was not the winner. So he ended up losing to a player I haven't heard of before. 
It was a Canadian player, an Asian guy named Chanracy Kuhn. K-H-U-N is how you spell his last name. C-H-A-N-R-A-C-Y is his first name. Chanracy Kuhn. There were 64 players in this event. I don't know if they capped it at 64, because the problem with heads-up events is that it has to be a perfect power of two in order to not have to give buys to people. Because people play each other heads up and move on, but it has to be an exact power of two. So it has to be either uh, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, etc. So I don't know, maybe they just uh, capped it out at 64. I'm not sure how that worked. The top prize was $507,000. Second prize was three thirteen. Third and fourth, which are identical, because that just means you made the second to last round, is uh, 192. And fifth through eighth was 74K. And uh, that was all that paid. You, you didn't get money for winning the first two rounds. Who were the eight people who made the money in this heads-up 25K event, which is obviously a very tough event, I told you about Chen Racy Kuhn finishing first and Doug Polk finishing second. The other six were Chris Brewer and Sean Winter in third and fourth. And then the fifth through eighth, Roberto Perez, Anthony Zinno, Eric Wasserson, and young Landon Teese. So good for Landon. It's a tough event. Some people have criticized Landon that he gets too much attention simply because he's young and hangs out with Berkey. He made it to the third to last round here and was one of eight people cashing. So that's pretty impressive. So that was a nice hit for Landon. I, I'm guessing he didn't have all of himself there. I'm guessing Berkey or somebody else backed him, but still a good accomplishment. And, you know, uh, Landon impressed me last month with his maturity, which I didn't expect I'd ever say. I didn't think I'd put Landon and maturity in the same sentence, but but he really did when there were some people bashing me, and we're not friends, and we've never been friends. We're not enemies, but we're not close at all. We don't really know each other, and he had a, a very mature take about it regarding how people behave on social media. I was, I was impressed by the way he handled it and the comments he made, and this is regarding a person that he's not friends with. Props to Landon for that as well. Anyway, the truth is Doug Polk should not have made the final round. And I'm not saying this out of any kind of offense, but just simply because of the way it played out at the very end. When I say should not, I mean, he deserved it because he won fair and square. But as far as uh, the way he got there, He basically two-outed his way into the final round. He was up against this uh, Chris Brewer. And uh, for the most part, they were pretty even with each other. Neither of them took much of a lead and the blinds kept going up. So it got to the point that they were going to get it in if they both got good hands at the same time. So that's exactly what happened. Polk got pocket queens, and Brewer got pocket kings, and they got it all in pre-flop, with stacks being uh, almost identical, Brewer having a tiny bit more. 
So it went five bets, and Brewer put in the fifth bet, and Polk called. And then Polk wasn't very happy to see that he was running out Queens versus Kings for his life in that tournament. And basically, whoever lost this was going to be out because Brewer was going to be down to uh, dust at that point if he lost. But of course, Brewer was the tremendous favorite with Kings over Queens. So the flop was dealt, and it was safe. And the turn was dealt, and it was safe. So all Brewer had to fade was that queen on the river. There's no kind of funny thing like a straight or a flush, nothing he had to worry about with those queens. At that point on the river, the only two outs were the other two queens. And one of them hit. So Brewer was down to a few big blinds, and as you might guess, he didn't survive. So bad beat for him. He he really should have been the one to go on. Now, to be fair, this is just the way the deck dealt out. I don't know how big the blinds were at that point, but I'm guessing Doug probably couldn't get away from it. I mean, Doug is, is such a good heads-up player. I I can't imagine him stupidly overplaying Queen's if the blinds weren't big enough to justify it. But at some point, the blinds have gone up enough that even if you and your opponent are, have the same stack, you've got to put it in with queens, even if your opponent's showing a lot of aggression. And Doug did, and it it happened he was up against kings. Now, I have to imagine the same thing probably would have happened if Doug got the kings and Brewer got the queens. And I have to imagine the same thing would have happened if... It went the other way. If Doug got the kings and Brewer got the queens, and then Doug took the bad beat on the river with the queen. So this is just one of these things where they both got hands that probably just had to put all the money in pre-flop, and then one person bad beat the other. The one with a much lesser hand bad beat the other. So bad beats, of course, are part of poker, but it's not like Polk sat down and outplayed Brewer and then moved on to the final round that way. They were even for pretty much the whole way. And then this hand where the money was destined to get in happened. And then Brewer had the much better hand and then he took a bad beat. So really Paul, I shouldn't say he didn't deserve to move on, but he moved on based on luck. It wasn't even like a coin flip luck. He was, he moved on based on putting a bad beat down after they both got it in, where I'm assuming it was obvious that they both had to get it in. Okay, so here's a weird story. This just occurred last night. Rob Kuhn claimed that his big stack at the 600 No Limit event vanished. It vanished to thin air during a break. Listen to this. All right, weirdest situation at the WSP. Get back from dinner break. I don't have my chips. I'm like one of the chip leaders, too. And they can't figure out what's going on, so they have to go to the cameras. And sorry to anyone in the 600, it's me and one other player that they just lost their chips. So they have to go to the cameras, and they took a, they're taking a 25-minute break. Shout out to my partner in crime here. No chips. Our chips are stolen. David, some people return them. I'm trying to get my first min cash here, all right? God damn. So uh, sorry for the extended break, anyone in this tournament that watches this video. I didn't want this to happen either, but it is what it is. 
Rob Kuhn is at R-O-B-K-U-H-N underscore. And he is an ACR pro. He plays on there as PokerGuru740. So he's claiming something I've never seen before, that a big stack of chips, not just a few chips, but a big stack of chips disappeared during the break and that it happened to one other person as well. I'm not sure if that person is at the same table, but he and one other person found their stacks completely missing when they came back from break. And I've never seen this ever. I've never seen once where someone comes back to their seat and the stack is gone. Now, maybe there's been cases where people come back and their stack has been moved because they've been sent to another table, but then they're always told, yeah, you were just moved to this other table, go there, because the floor man always lets the dealer know to tell the player. And in case you're wondering if it's possible that maybe someone on break could have stolen his chips, well, how? When you go on break at a tournament, the dealers don't. The dealers stay at the table, and the dealers have nothing to do. They're just twiddling their thumbs, and they're not allowed to be on their phones. They have to just sit there and wait, however long the break is. They have to sit at the table. It's very, very boring. I would hate that part of the job if I were a dealer. But they have to just sit there and wait. Yeah, they get paid for the job, but they're doing nothing. They're actually just sitting there and waiting for people to come back. So someone is guarding all the stacks at all times, and that's why they do it. They don't just have the dealers leave because then the stacks are unprotected. This leaves the dealer there to protect the stacks the same way the dealer would if the players were there. So how could someone show up with a dealer sitting there and grab a big stack and take it away? Like let's say someone was down to a few chips or let's say someone just happened to have a few high-value chips so they weren't short-stacked, but they only have a few physical chips. So let's say they had uh, three 25K chips to give them 75K exactly, and let's say the average around that time was 80. So they're around average stacked, but they only have three chips that are physical chips there. So in that situation, maybe if the dealer's looking the other way, someone could walk by and quickly grab those and pocket them and not get caught. But it doesn't sound like that's what he's talking about here. It sounds like he had a physical big stack of physically a lot of chips. How could someone show up to the table and get those chips off the table, every single one of them, without the dealer noticing? And by the way, you're not allowed to come and fiddle with or take away your chips. So even if it's you and the dealer knows that you're in that seat and those are your chips, you're still not allowed to fiddle with them or take them away at that point. Once you leave, you can't come back until they say you're allowed to return from break. So big mystery. I've never seen this before. He claimed it happened to two people. So I asked, wasn't there a dealer sitting at the table watching all the stacks? What did he or she say happened? A woman named Ashley responded. Rob Kuhn did not respond, but Ashley responded and said, this, referring to what I said that she also has the same question. I'm a dealer this year. We aren't allowed to leave during your breaks. They do allow us to go pee if we've been locked in the box for a while, but only if someone's watching your table for you. Meaning that uh, if you really have to go to the bathroom, if you can get somebody else to sit there at the table in your place, you can go to the bathroom and come back. But you can never just leave it empty. So we got an update. The only thing I could guess is he was moved and he didn't realize that they they moved him and some other person and they weren't properly informed. That was my guess. Well, here's the update posted 
about an hour later. Keep in mind, they took a 25-minute break. I don't know if it was uh, just a longer break than schedule or if this is a separate break to fix this. It kind of sounds like they added a separate break to the 600 No Limit event just to fix the situation. And they're checking the cameras what happened. So here's the update. About an hour later, update. An older gentleman with 550K accidentally played my stack. Luckily, he didn't play any hands, so they didn't have to reconstruct my chips. Another guy with 240K lost his chips as well. No update on what happened to him. So the other guy, they haven't figured it out. With him, what? it's supposed to be that an older gentleman with 550K accidentally played my stack. Now, what does that mean? Does he mean that he had 550K and an older gentleman sat down with his stack? Or does he mean that the older gentleman had 550K, which was similar to Rob's stack, and that the old guy accidentally sat down at Rob's stack because it was similar to his, and then Rob didn't remember what seat he was in, so he just came back to the table and says, where's my chips? The only thing I see is an empty space here. So let's say, I'm just guessing here, but let's just say when Rob left to go to break, there he was uh, in seat four with, say, 580K. And then this old guy went to the wrong table, maybe a table nearby, saw a stack that he thought was his. It was actually Rob's, and it was about the same size as his. And he sat down in that seat. And then Rob came back and didn't remember specifically what seat he was in, just kind of remembered what his stack looked like. But he sees an old man sitting in that spot now. So he's looking around saying, well, the only empty spot at this table is seat five. That must have been my seat, but there's no chips here. So he forgot that he was in seat four. He sees an empty spot at seat five. And in seat four, there's this old man sitting there, and he doesn't bother to think, hey, maybe the old man sat in my spot. Now, that's still weird, because I always remember what seat I'm in, and I always remember exactly what my stack looks like. So I don't know how you would not remember your seat and what your stack looks like, but uh, apparently that happened here, if, if I'm understanding this correctly. But I guess that's what they figured out. And how, what about the second person? Let's say this bizarre thing occurred. Then how did this happen to a second person at the same time? It's so weird. I don't know what's going on. But that's all we have from him. He didn't explain further. And for some reason, no, no one is that interested in this story. The update has three replies, even though it was viewed by 21,000 people. And even the original one, which was viewed by 66,000 people, has only 17 replies. And most people just saying, well, give us the info, what happens? And he never did. Very weird. But I guess that's the closest thing we have to a a scandal so far in this uh, early world series. Speaking of scandal, Ali Imstrovic is apparently not banned from the World Series of Poker, nor is he banned from the online World Series of Poker. This was discovered by a player who noticed that Ali was in one of the updates of one of the online events that's going. A person who goes by Cameron, who is Camzilla Poker, C-A-M-Z-I-L-L-A Poker on Twitter, wrote, Come on, WCB.com, sort your shit out. Guy is banned from by biggest online and live operators, but can play in all your events. Beyond dumb. So what he's trying to say there is that there's a lot of venues that have Ali Imsrovic, a highly suspected cheater. A lot of venues have banned him. 
So he's not allowed on Poker Go. He is not allowed to the EPT. He, I think he's banned from some other live events. He's banned from GG Poker. So he's banned from a lot of places, Ali Imsravik. He is accused of uh, running a multi-accounting and real-time assistance ring, along with uh, Jake Schindler. But both Ali and Jake, whose names are really mud in the poker community now, are still able to play the World Series. In fact, Jake actually won a bracelet last year, which upset a lot of people. And here in this uh, online event, they were listing not only the people's real names that were joining it that were notable players, but they were also listing their screen names along with them. And some of these are kind of funny screen names, even though it has nothing to do with Ali. But let's go over some of these that they listed which is what allowed this person to notice that Ali was there. First screen name, Adam Peso Peso Cratch. Then Matthew Pee Pee Poo Poo Paoletti. <laughs> Pee Pee Poo Poo. Come on. What is the second grade? Then Patrick Synesthesia Eskandar. Sergey Copone, not Capone, but Copone, Kilinski. I think he misspelled Capone. I think he was trying to be like Al Capone, except he's Copone. Andrew, Dr. Disrespect Dean, and disrespect for some reason is capital D-I-S, then capital R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Benjamin, the shy guy, Ector. This one, really weird. I, I had no idea this was this person's name online. Uh, Jamie Dambelzerian Kerstetter. <laughs> so, so I, guess, I guess Jamie Kerstetter plays as Dambelzerian on WSOP.com, which I guess is allowed. It's just kind of funny. James Biggs 2024 Anderson. Tony Freddy Fish Miles. I like this one, and especially who it's attached to. Martin Bathroom Online Zamani. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, it's Bathroom Line. I like Bathroom Online better. That would have been a better name. It's actually Bathroom Line. <laughs> I read it as Bathroom Online, like he's playing online from the bathroom. That would be a better name, Bathroom Online. But he's Bathroom Line, which is also kind of funny. I guess it's referring to the big bathroom line of uh, the WSOP Live. That's Martin Zamani, you know, the former horse of Bryn Kenny's, who admitted he cheated and claimed it was on behalf of Bryn Stable, which is probably true. Then Carlos Flop It Hot Loving and Jonathan Diggity Zarin. <laughs> Diggity. <laughs> How come some of these players have such weird screen names? When I play on WSP.com, I don't see that many screen names like this. Anyway, who is Ali Imsravik on there? He is Sasuke Uchiha. Almost like he's trying to seem like he's Japanese. Sasuke, S-A-S-U-K-E, Uchiha, U-C-H-I-H-A. Someone said, oh, I bet this is somebody else's account. But probably not because... The reporting that they're doing on Poker News is based upon a list they have of these names. 
So they're getting it from some database. So if it's somebody else's account, then it wouldn't be registered to Ali Imstervik. So that's probably the name he chose for whatever reason. But yeah, he's playing. He and uh, Pee Pee Poo Poo and Martin Zamani, Mr. Bathroom Line and Diggity. They're all together there at that online event. I don't know why they don't just ban him. They can. They don't need to prove it. They don't need to prove anything. I've said this a number of times. Anyone that is widely believed by the poker community to be a cheater and who will not defend themselves, he will never defend himself. That's very suspicious. Because if these were allegations that were false, and keep in mind he's not accused in a court of law, there's no reason he can't comment on it. And if he did comment on it, he could just deny it without giving details. He could just say, no, I didn't. And no one's going to be able to show I did because I'm not doing it. Like, that could never incriminate him. But he doesn't say it. He just won't comment. If you ask him in person, he'll say no comment. So would someone who's innocent act that way? If your reputation is horrible throughout the community because you're accused of cheating, and someone asks you and you say no comment, so why would you ever say that if you didn't do it? So given that there's such wide belief that he did do it, I just don't understand why Caesars doesn't ban him. It's not like they're banning someone who just is unpopular for a different reason. Let's say uh, someone who owes money to a bunch of people or someone who said offensive things online, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, for Caesars to start a precedent of banning someone just because the community doesn't like them, that's not a good precedent. They, they can, but they shouldn't. But someone who is an accused cheater that is widely believed to be a cheater and to where it upsets their customer base to see that person there, especially at these online events. Like, why they don't just say, we don't want your business, I don't know. Because there'd be nothing Ali could do about it. He couldn't sue them. He couldn't compel them to reinstate him. They could just say, we don't like you. We don't like you. You being here upsets our customers. You're not welcome here. That's all they have to say. They don't have to prove anything. Just the fact that other customers don't like seeing him and hate him. That could be the stated reason. They don't have to state any reason. They could just say, we don't want you. You think anyone's going to defend him? You think anyone's going to show up on Twitter and say, no, let Ali play. He's a great guy. No one's going to say that. Anyone who would say that would get jumped on. So this is something Caesars could do without any real blowback. And it's not even like it would uh, establish a precedent that they have to keep to. They don't have to say, okay, well, from now on, anytime someone's accused of cheating, we're going to ban them. They can reserve this for only the most egregious cases where it's very widely believed to be true on a massive scale. They can set a very high standard for where it has to reach before they will ban someone, even if they were not caught actually cheating at the World Series. Because Ali's never been caught cheating at the World Series. But they could just want to keep anyone who has that reputation out of here. I think that would be a great thing to do, like some of these other tours have done. So that's why it's upsetting this Cameron person, and he's right. But it really is kind of like a free roll for Caesars to ban him, because there's not going to be anyone outraged by it. And if for some reason he is caught or suspected of cheating here, it'll look really bad that they didn't pre-ban him. All right, so now I want to talk about cash games 
at the World Series. The cash game scene at the actual World Series, I'm not talking about throughout Vegas, but I'm talking about actually on site at the World Series where they also run cash games. That whole scene is pretty weak compared to other years. It used to be that other than at off hours, the cash game section was just filled to the brim. There were just tons of people playing. It was hard to get a seat. And while it is hard to get a seat at certain variants that are running, you're seeing a lot of empty tables, especially in the High Limit King's Lounge section, where there's games that used to go every day that don't go at all anymore. So I have not seen, for the entire first week of the World Series, a single hand played of Omaha 8 or better, Limit Omaha 8, I have not seen at 5,100 or higher, where this used to be a very regular game. It's just gone. You see people getting on the board for it, but the game never runs. There is a 5,000 stud eight or better that's been running pretty consistently, but no Omaha. And in general, you're just seeing, especially in the higher stakes, the games just aren't happening. And even at the middle stakes and the lower stakes, you're just not seeing as much. So you're seeing a lot of empty tables. You're seeing a lot fewer cash games running. And I'm not sure why, because the World Series itself is doing great numbers. They're, they're getting a lot of interest to in the tournaments. But for whatever reason, the interest in the cash games, especially at the upper limit, seems to be declined compared to previous years. Now, Bellagio, they have every single table filled except for very late at night. When I say very late, I mean like really, really late at night. Like at three in the morning, yeah, tables start opening. But for most of the day, they just don't have room. And that's why you'll see things like 50 people on the list for 4080 Limit Hold'em because they'd love to open more of them. They just can't because there's no room. So I bet Bellagio could probably fill a room double the size. They just run out of tables. So it's not that cash is dying in Vegas during the World Series. It's just people don't seem to want to play at the WSOP. And I'm not sure of the reason for it. But for whatever reason, people bust from the World Series and then just go elsewhere to play. Now, with cash games, a lot of times it's all about what gets started. So, for example, I think if an 08 game of 5,500 or higher got started, I bet it would fill up and run for a while. But people see know what is playing, and, and you can't get it started. You can get on an interest list, but then it never really goes. And then you you get on an interest list, and what happens? You you don't just stand around and wait until hours later when people get interest. You you get on there, but you don't stand around and wait. So unless you're playing something else, you just leave. So I don't know if they could hire props for this or or what, but it's just not working out. Maybe a solution would be to lower the rake and and make. In public, they're lowering the rake, at least for a while, and get the games going. I know the rake was pretty high in previous years, so maybe that's what's driving people away. But I have not played any cash at the World Series of Poker cash room for that reason. And this will segue into the second part of this segment. I'm going to give you my tips for game selection, cash game selection during the World Series. But also, you can apply most of this to 
general cash game selection. So even if you're not going to be at the World Series this or any other year, if you game select at all, you'll want to hear this portion of the segment. I'm going to clear up a lot of misconceptions about cash game selection. And a lot of winning at poker is about game selection. It's more about who you play than how well you play. The very simple example is that if you're the ninth worst poker player in the world and you play against the eight worst people, you're going to be the shark in that game and over time you're going to win a lot of money. If you're the ninth best player in the world and you're playing poker with the eight best, you're the fish in the game and over time you're going to lose money. So that demonstrates that it's more about who you're playing with than how you play. So with that in mind, here are 10 tips on cash game selection. Number one, and I put this as number one because it's the most important. The absence of good players is more important than the presence of bad players. The very best game that you're going to find is one where you are substantially better than everyone else in the game, even if there's no outright fish. If you feel like you have control of the action, if you feel like everyone is a good deal less skilled than you, and be honest with it, don't just think you're great because it's you, or overestimate your skill. Be honest. If you can notice that everybody there is on a lower level than you, you're way better than everybody there, even though some of them are not outright fish, you're just clearly better than them and there's no one at the table who even compares to you, then you found a great game. And provided you run at least okay, you will win a lot of money. So don't obsess about finding games that have huge fish in them, or maniacs, or tons of action. Don't worry about that. The best game you're going to find is one that has no good players, especially one with no players better than you. But even ones who are about the same as you, it's better to be in games without them. What you really want is where everybody at the table can't compete with you. So it's much better, let's say you're a good but not great player. It's much better to have eight mediocre players at the table than four good players and four fish. Doesn't feel like it, but believe me, that's right. Because if you're above everybody else there in skill, then you're going to kill it. Number two, if your bankroll can support it, play the second biggest running game of whatever variant you choose. So let's say there's a poker room that's spreading between 1, 2, and 10, 20, no limit hold'em. And the second biggest game is 5, 10. Let's say your bankroll is not really the issue. You can afford to play any of these games. Should you go to the 10, 20? Well, probably not. If you're not noticing that the 1020 is especially good, you probably want to go to the 510 because the 1020 is going to suck up all the best players in the room and the 510 is going to be much softer. If there was no 1020, then you're going to have the best players in the 510 and then the 510 is not going to be as soft. But if you have a lot of good players taken out of the 510 game because they want to play 1020, now the 510 just gotten way better. And this connects with number one, where I said that the absence of good players is important. So this is what makes them absent, is when they will go play something else. 
That's one of the reasons they can be absent. So the second biggest game of whatever variant you want is almost always much easier than the biggest one. So keep that in mind. If both limits are okay with you, if neither is too small or too large and one's just bigger than the other, you should really consider the second biggest one. It's often a much easier game. And I'm talking about across all variants that have a lot of different levels running. So it can be limit hold'em, it can be no limit hold'em, it can be PLO. Most of the other variants don't have that many tables going, but this applies to anything. Now, this doesn't apply across variants. So let's say there's a 2550 no limit, and then there's a 4080 limit hold'em game in the same room. You can't say, well, I bet this 4080 is going to be softer because the good players would be in the 2550 no limit, and that's the bigger game. No, because that's a different type of poker. So a lot of the good 4080 limit hold'em players wouldn't want to play no limit. So that's why they're not there, even if they can afford it. So it doesn't work that way. But with the same variant, yes, this almost always is the case. It's very uncommon that the second highest game of a particular variant is the same or harder than the highest game. Number three, the over-aggressive or overly loose player at the table may actually be better than you. So it's easy to dismiss someone who's loose, who chases, who's overly aggressive. It's easy to dismiss them as morons or fish and say that these people being in the game makes it great. But don't make that mistake. Now, sometimes players like that are fish, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes you just don't understand their playing style. And even if you do understand their play style, sometimes you'll have a hard time adjusting to it. Sometimes it'll throw your own game off and you won't quite know how to deal with them. So the very best games are ones where people are passive calling stations and don't put you to the test very often. Again, you want to be the one controlling the action. You want to feel comfortable with all your decisions that you always can kind of see what's going on. And someone who is very aggressive, very loose, hard to put on hands, they leave you guessing a lot and it can be hard to deal with, even if overall they're a losing player. But you know what? Sometimes they're not a losing player. Sometimes it's just an unorthodox style that happens to work, that their aggression throws people off their game and they end up winning. So don't just dismiss these people as crappy and say, oh, I got to play with this guy. Look how much, look how often he puts a lot of money in. And then you can even watch him lose a big pot once in a while where he seemingly does something stupid and really be convinced he's a fish. But no, sometimes that's just a bug that's also a feature, basically, where sometimes this is going to happen to him from being so aggressive, but that he makes up for it by all the pots he wins where he gets more action than other people would or where he runs people off hands. So don't automatically judge someone who plays an unorthodox style like that as being bad. Now, a loose passive player, they can be judged pretty easily as being bad because uh, that's exactly who you want in the game. That That's never going to be a winning style. But over-aggressive style, sometimes they can be, so be aware of that. Number four, if you're at a limit game of any kind, Not just hold them, but if you're at a limit cash game, beware of getting run over when it gets shorthanded. 
And you may say, wait a minute. Well, what about no limit? What about pot limit? Well, I'll explain. Limit games cost you more per round than no limit or pot limit games due to the bigger blinds. Because no limit and pot limit games play bigger compared to the blinds than limit games. So, for example, in Hold'em, a 30-60 or 40-80 limit Hold'em game is about equivalent to a 5-10 no limit game in terms of uh, what you can expect to win or lose in a typical session. So even though the blinds are much smaller at the no limit here, you'll kind of roughly have about the same swings at both games. So, how does this apply to what I'm talking about here? Well, with the blinds being bigger at the limit game, if it's short-handed, the blinds are going to come to you much more often. So you can't just afford to sit around waiting for good hands to play like you can at a full ring game. Now, you can say that's true about no limit, but it's much worse at limit because the blinds are bigger. And you're going to get blinded out so much, and you're also going to sometimes call the blinds and then fold the flop, that this is going to really add up. And even when you win some hands here or there, it's just not going to make up for the hands that you lose at such a rapid rate. The small hands you're going to lose at the shorthanded game, if you're not playing right, if you're getting run over in a limit game, it's just going to kill you because the blinds are higher compared to the pot when you're comparing it to no limit or pot limit. So at least no limit or pot limit, if you're getting run over shorthanded, at least you still have the saving grace of sometimes letting the aggressive players uh, shoot off money to you when you finally hit something big. I'm not saying that's the right strategy, but at least there you can sometimes have that saving grace. At limit, that's not going to happen. So at limit, you can't just count on one or two pots bailing you out. So you're just going to get really ground down if you are not used to shorthanded play at a limit game. And it's something you have to learn from getting used to it and from understanding how to be a good shorthanded limit player. And if you don't know exactly what to adjust, what to do, if you feel uncomfortable shorthanded, there's one solution. Leave. When it gets shorthanded, just leave. And I know a lot of players who do it. I know a lot of players who are winning full ring players in these limit games, and when it gets shorthanded, they just leave because they know they're just not good at it. Or you can put out the effort to learn how to be a good shorthanded limit player. But don't just keep playing your same full ring game shorthanded and get run over and then walk away losing a lot of money and not understand what happened. I play a lot of shorthanded limit hold'em. And I love when live games go shorthanded because a lot of times you will have players there that can't handle it. And they're, they just don't get it. Like they, It's funny because you watch them get frustrated. You watch them get frustrated when bad beats get put on them or uh, when just somehow their stack dwindles down and they don't understand what's going on here. How is this guy playing all this trash? The winner here, they, they're just not getting it. But it's because it's a whole different game. You have to play a lot more hands. You have to be more aggressive. And if you don't, it's going to kill you. So if you're not used to that, at limit games, you just leave when it goes shorthanded. Number five, you need to go off the beaten path. If you are in a city with only one place to play poker, then this does not apply. But if you are in a city, whether you live there or you're visiting there, which has multiple card rooms, then try exploring 
and see if you can find better games. Now, fortunately, you don't have to physically explore, at least not at the beginning, because there are apps out there like the Bravo app and Poker Atlas, where you can look for a lot of rooms which games are presently running. Some of these rooms are not connected to that, and you cannot see this. Some of them will just list what they will offer, but not what's running at the moment. But at least you can use these apps to get more of an idea. And then when you get an idea, what has the games and limits that you like, then try going to the other places in town that spread those games and limits and try them out. And you may actually find that one room is significantly easier than the other at the same game and limits. So don't just go where you've gotten used to going or where people say you should go. Try it for yourself. Look on these apps or call around. You can also call these rooms and ask what's running and what typically runs. And when you find a room that spreads a game that you would like to play, try something new. You may be surprised how much more you like it at the other place. You may find some hidden gems, ones where there's a lot of weak players coming and your regular room you go to, you have to face a lot of tough competition. So if you find that, keep your mouth shut, by the way. Don't tell everybody in town, hey, you look, check out this good game I found over there, then the word's going to get out. But yeah, definitely go off the beaten path. And sometimes the best games are the ones that are not the best known casino in town. Number six, tight games are not worth sticking around for. If the game is very tight, then just don't bother. You're just not going to make much money. And even if you try to adjust to be looser and more aggressive to take advantage of the tightness, it's just not going to help. Because you're just not going to make much money from just stealing small pots. Now, the one exception goes back to what I was talking about with a shorthanded limit game. So if you are at a shorthanded limit game and everybody's just very tight, it's still not the greatest game if everybody's too tight. But at least there, from all the blind stealing and everything, you can grind out a, a decent win. But aside from that... When a game is tight and nobody's in the mood to put chips in the pot unless they have something big, then it's time to switch tables or leave. You're just not going to get much out of it. And sometimes trying to get looser will just backfire and you'll end up with dominated hands. And It's just not a situation that's worth sticking around for. So just leave or switch tables if possible. Number seven, don't ruin the vibe of the game. So if one or more fish at the table are being loud and acting crazy. Don't act annoyed and don't put on your hoodie and your headphones and try to tune them out. Act crazy along with them. Even if you're not really in the mood to, just do it anyway. If everybody wants to straddle, which basically is a blind bet you're putting in before the cards are dealt, usually uh, in the under-the-gun position, Agree to it and don't complain. Even if you hate straddles and it makes you uncomfortable and it's something you prefer not to do, just if, if the game is good and the fish want to straddle, then just straddle. It's not going to cost you that much, even if you're not good at playing in those spots. And if you take bad beats, don't ever get emotional about it in front of these players here that are there to have a good time. 
You just got to smile and pretend it's all okay. Even if you're burning up inside about the bad beat, do not complain. Don't be a downer. Just either say nothing or laugh about it. Either way is okay, but do not act all pissed off because it's going to ruin the mood there. And definitely, definitely, definitely do not ever act angry at other players for putting bad beats on you because all that does is discourage the other players from chasing and from making suboptimal plays. So if you are fortunate enough to be at a good game where everybody's acting fun and playing very loose because of it and giving away money, don't ruin it. And in fact, you can sometimes make it even better by helping that environment along, by joining in with it. And then they'll sometimes make the game even better. And don't worry if it's not your natural personality. It doesn't have to be. You just kind of go with the flow of the way the personality of, of the table. And you'll have more fun there yourself. And you'll win more money. Number eight. This one isn't discussed very often. And sometimes when it is, you have a lot of sanctimonious people that don't want to really have a full discussion about it other than just say don't do it. But I'm going to give you a discussion about changing seats to get position on the bad player at the table. So, yes, the direct left of the worst player at the table is often the best seat because you act right after him. So that's the seat you usually want. But you have to be careful not to be obnoxious or obvious about it because the bad players at the table are not necessarily stupid. In fact, some of them are very smart and they work very difficult professions which require a lot of education and a lot of intelligence, but they're just not good poker players. So you don't want them to feel like a sucker. You don't want them to feel like you're taking advantage of them because they're there for entertainment. They're there because they just enjoy playing poker and they may be at a middle or high stakes game with you because they want to play for meaningful money because they are doing well in their career. So even though they're aware that they're not one of the better players at the table, they at least want to feel like that they're on equal footing with everybody as far as respect they're shown. And when you're trying to get edges on them by taking position on them and things like that, that just makes them feel like that they're being taken advantage of. Now, someone has to sit to their left, so it's not like, there's no one ever going to be to the left because they're the fish. There's no way to have it where there's nobody to the left. There's always going to be someone acting directly after them, no matter what. There's, it's impossible to have a poker game where that doesn't happen. So since someone will be there, it might as well be you if you can make it happen, but you've got to be careful the way you do it because you don't want to project to them that you're moving there because they're a bad player and you're trying to take advantage of that. So again, because someone will get that seat, it's fine if you want it to be you. But you have to be very careful about the way you go about it. And nobody wants to talk about this because when this subject comes up, all you get is, oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's bum hunting. Oh, you shouldn't do this. But the problem is, as I said, someone's going to get that seat. And people do switch to those seats and take those seats for that purpose. But then act all sanctimonious on Twitter or on forums and pretend they never do. So I'm going to give you an honest and frank discussion about the seat changing, because I'm not going to pretend you don't want that seat. I'm not going to pretend that uh, it's wrong to take that seat. It's the way you take it that's important. So how do you take that seat if it opens up? 
let's say the bad player has position on you or semi-position on you, and you really want that seat that opens up one or two to his left. Well, what you shouldn't do is the second the person stands out of the chair who's leaving in the seat you want to jump and say, I'll take that, I'll take that, it's my seat, my seat, I'll take that, I'm switching to that seat, everybody, don't take that seat, that's my seat. Don't do that, because that's going to make you look overly eager to take that seat. And as I said, these people aren't stupid. They may not be good poker players, but they're not stupid. So the guy you're trying to get position on is going to say, why is that so important to jump to that seat? Oh, it's because of my left. Uh, He wants position on me because he thinks I suck. Oh, man, this sucks. I hate being looked at this way. So you don't want him to ever think these things. It's not even that you're like fooling him. You just do not want to insult him. Because if you're moving for that reason, but he doesn't see you're moving for that reason, then it's not insulting. And that's the point, is you don't want them to be assaulted, because that ruins the time they're having there. It's not about deception, it's more of just not making the person feel bad. So, how do you do this without them noticing why you're doing it? Well, you come up with a different reason for why you're moving. So first of all, you don't act overly eager and jump on it the second the seat opens. If you have seniority at the table, you have a right to take that seat, even if someone announces it before you. So if someone says, I'm moving there, then you can say, oh, you know what, actually, I was thinking of moving there, uh, so I'd like that seat. You, know, you, you don't get angry or, or aggressively say, no, no, that's my seat, no, I've seen you already, give it to me. Like, you've got to be very subtle about it and say, you know what, actually, I was going to uh, move there, I just haven't announced it yet, so uh, can I please have it? But if nobody announces that they're taking it, and of course, if they have seniority, someone else at the table can choose it over you, so... The point is grabbing it immediately. There's no point to it. That if somebody wants that seat anyway, who has seniority, they're going to get it. And if they don't want it, then you'll get it. And you don't have to jump on it right away. And if they're calling a new player to the table, then yeah, before that new player sits in that seat, you can just tell the new player, actually, I'd like to switch over there. But let's just take the hypothetical situation where the seat sits empty and nobody's immediately grabbing it. Then wait a little bit. Wait like 10 minutes. So it gets out of the mind of the player you're trying to get position on that you'd be moving there to get position on him. Because the second it opens, you jump on it, then it's, it's more obvious. If you wait 10 minutes and move, it's more obvious. If you wait 10 minutes and move over, it's less obvious. But it's even better if you have like a very short backstory as far as moving over. So the way I do this is let's say I'm at a game and there is a fish at the table and I want to have position on him but I don't want him to be insulted by this or have any idea that's why I'm moving. Open. I wait 10 minutes, and then the next hand I lose, I feign a little bit of frustration and go, ah, I can't win in this seat anymore. And then I, I, I throw uh, a chip over to the open seat I really wanted to move to. I go, oh, let's try over here. Or I'll say, ah, this seat's no good anymore. Okay, let me try this one. So then you just look like a superstitious person who's trying to go to another seat so it'll be luckier. And it's a lot better to be seen that way than someone who's trying to take position on the fish. Now, the other pros at the table, or even the other non-pros who are experienced and and good, they'll probably know what you're doing. But they're not going to say anything because they do the same thing. But that's the way to do it, to make it look like you're moving seats for a purpose. You don't jump on it right away. And then when you do move, do it right after you lose a hand. 
and even play up a little frustration. Don't throw a, a tantrum or make a scene. But I'll, I'll play it up a little bit. Like if I lose the hand, I'll kind of like kind of toss the cards away a little bit uh, angrily and go, all right, I'm, I'm going to move over there. And I'll throw the thing around. Ah, this this seat's I'm not winning here anymore. And, and well, what if you have been winning that seat? Well, if you're crushing it, then that's not going to work. But you can still come up with a new story. Oh, okay, I guess the I guess the seat's not hot anymore. Let me move here. But if you've kind of been up and down at that seat, no one's going to keep track of how well you've been doing if it's kind of middling. So no one's going to say, no, 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 I've seen you've done okay there. They're not going to say that. So right after uh, losing a hand is a good point to move because you know what? I see plenty of players really move for that reason. I, I watch people actually move seats because it's the, quote, unlucky seat and they don't want to be there anymore. So those people are not putting it on an act. I see a lot of people moving out of superstition. So just pretend to be one of them. Because all you have to fool is the fish in the game and not the other pros. And you know what? Even if he suspects it, it doesn't matter because at least he can even reason to himself, okay, well, you know, maybe he's moving to get position on me, but yeah, he seems kind of frustrated he lost the hand in that last spot. You know, maybe he's moving to superstition. You know, so, so you just want to leave that doubt in there, in their mind, so they don't think that for sure you're doing this because that's just going to drive them out of the game. That's going to make them leave and not want to come back. Now, what if you move and you get the seat and you're not obvious about it and everything's cool and then five minutes later, the player you moved for position says, you know what? I'm going to take that seat over there and then they move to another seat that now has position on you again. What do you do? And what if a seat again opens up to your left? Do you jump on that? No. Do you wait 10 minutes and move? No. You give up at that point. You don't chase them around the table. That's, that's another thing you should never do. Do not chase a fish around the table if they're moving. Because they usually are moving just to uh, get better luck or because they don't like the view from the seat they're at. They're usually not moving to get away from you having position on them. So don't chase them around or it becomes very obvious, no matter what your backstory is. So what should you do? Well, either wait for quite some time before moving, like an hour, or wait and there's a good chance they'll move back. I've seen this happen before where I get a good seat on the fish, then he moves and I go, shit, <laughs> that was for nothing. And then I'll give up. I'll accept my seat changing defeat. And then, what do you know, 20 minutes later, he goes, hey, you know what, I don't like this seat, actually. I'm, I'm going to move back to this other one. I've seen it so many times where that happens. So sometimes the problem will fix itself anyway. Number nine, if you just busted a tournament in frustrating fashion, don't go play a cash game. It can be very tempting to want to get unstuck for a tournament buy-in by moving to cash and trying to win back what you spent on the tournament. So if it's a mundane bust where you just couldn't ever get anything going, kind of like my first two tournaments this year at the World Series, then, okay, no problem. Because you didn't really have much hope at any point. It was a little frustrating you couldn't get anything going, but at the same time, you kind of just had the feeling the whole way it just wasn't your day at that tournament. So you don't walk away really pissed off. So then you can go move on to cash and play your normal game. 
But if you just had a frustrating end to the tournament, such as bubbling or very close to bubbling a tournament, or you had a big stack running deep and lost it, or you just went out by losing a huge pot because of a bad beat or a cooler, or even if you were at a final table, but were the first one out of that table, and you notice the tremendous difference between winning it and ninth place in the money, and also you don't get the bracelet or whatever other trophy you're playing for. So if any of these things have happened, if the tournament ending leaves you feeling empty inside, you're not going to fill that void by playing cash. So what should you do? Just take a break. No poker that night. Take a break from poker. Let your mind reset. Do not ever go from tournament super frustration into a cash game. It's just going to make everything worse. Finally, number 10, think about where you are and when you're playing. So, for example, an Omaha 8 or better cash game is not going to be that great when a lot of people are in town for the World Series of Poker 08 event. Now, if it's running when the 08 events are not going, meaning like two weeks after they're over, then they'll probably be a lot better. But when people are in town for that specific event, it's probably players who are good at that variant and the cash games are going to suck. However, if you're not playing that particular tournament, then the cash game, if it goes, will be good because the good players will be in the tournament. Also, you have to understand that the World Series of Poker, a lot of good players come to town who are not usually in Las Vegas. So just because the games are filled doesn't mean that they're good. You'll have a lot of all-stars from all over the world who've come in, and you really don't want to play with them. So you should more consider playing cash at times when it's more likely to have a lot of recreational players around. So in Las Vegas, a weekend like uh, a March Madness weekend, Super Bowl weekend, or any kind of big tourist weekend, that's a good time to go play poker, you're likely to get a lot more recreational players, and in fact, ones with money, because it tends to be more expensive to go to Vegas during those high-profile weekends. So always be aware of what's probably a good or not-so-good opportunity, cash game-wise, and who's going to be in those games. So think about where you are, and when you're playing, and who's likely to be there. Think about who are these people that are likely to be at the table. Where do they come from? How skilled are they likely to be? And when you come up with that answer to yourself, pick the times when the expected player group will be the least skilled. When do you think they won't be there? When do you think they will be there? Come up with a story about your opponents without even knowing who they are or even seeing them. And then that will often inform when is the best time to play and when the best time is to just go do something else. So those are my 10 tips about cash game selection, especially during the World Series. And I want to move on to talk about some fail that occurred to me on WSP.com. So as I've covered in the past on this show, in October of 2022, I made an unfortunate discovery. And that was money had been stolen from my account. Actually, I discovered it in November, but it occurred in October. Money had been stolen directly out of my bank account through the BetMGM legalized betting platform. $10,000 was withdrawn right out of my bank account 
via a BetMGM account that I did not actually have. It was a fake account, it turned out, that was created in my name for the purposes of stealing from my bank account. And it turned out the way that was being accomplished was through a flaw in the security of the global pay system that processes deposits and withdrawals through e-checks that, with very little information, someone was able to make a fake account in my name on BetMGM and access the accounts I had linked to my global pay that I had used to deposit to WSB.com in the past. So they didn't even need my bank account information. It was right there in a dropdown. And that was how they did it to me and more than 50 other poker players, most of whom were known names in poker. And we just had money directly stolen from us. And I was really the main person actively investigating this whole thing. I also got law enforcement involved. I also brought it to the attention of the media. There were articles even in the mainstream media about this, including ESPN. And I was featured in a lot of these articles. And thanks to a lot of that, this ended a lot sooner than it otherwise would have. So it only lasted a few weeks, and it only lasted about one week after I discovered it and aggressively made everybody aware of it and got this in the media. And in fact, Global Payments admitted to me, one of the executives there spoke to me and admitted to me that the fact that this was rapidly increasing in prominence in media was something that really lit a fire under them to do something about it. So I can take credit for that. And I was especially interested in this story because I was a victim here. I would have taken interest anyway, but I took much more of an interest because it actually victimized me. And that just gave me the extra motivation to really put the time into solving this one. Because I'd love to put a lot of time into all these things, but I just don't have all that much time to do all this stuff. But uh, this one I had the motivation to really put a lot of time and effort into since whoever did this stole $10,000 from me and then stole a lot of money from other poker players as well. But that was back in the fall of 2022. So why are we talking about this in the month of June in 2023? Well, it turned out that there was some additional fallout from this that I hadn't yet realized. Now remember, this was done through the Global Pay platform, Global Payments, through something called VIP Preferred, which is used to deposit money to legalize gaming sites within the U.S. And VIP Preferred is something used by a lot of different gaming platforms. And the problem was, once you have created an account uh, through VIP Preferred, which you don't do directly through them, it, it gets created for you when you use them as a, an option to deposit, then that same information was able to be accessed on other sites that use VIP Preferred and just basically steal out of your account with the info you already provided. So... Not only was my concern getting back the $10,000, and not only was my concern putting a stop to this from happening to everybody else, and also to bring the people to justice who did it, but another one of my concerns was, how do I prevent this from happening to me again? Because they had that security loophole, and anyone could still create an account that uses global payments and the VIP preferred service 
and do the same thing to me all over again. So how do I stop this? So at the time, what global payments told me was the only way is to disable my global payments account to where basically if somebody tries to use it, the limit will be zero and they will not be able to deposit from my bank account using these fake accounts. Throw on a Mr. Trader Ruski here. Hello. What's happening, Josh? So I hope the meeting went okay. Meeting was good. I had about three meetings since I've been back. Oh wow! And uh, and then I came on. I mean, it sounds like D Money's just giving money away. It sounds so exciting. Yeah, except the people in the archives won't hear this because I, I I just play that as filler and then I cut it out when uh, when I I archive it. But yeah, that's uh, for those of you that don't know. Uh, when you hear the show like just one long thing where I take no breaks, it's not me speaking for eight straight hours without taking a break. It uh, It's me speaking a lot of hours without taking a break, but I do take at least one break where I leave uh, D-Lucky or some other ridiculous channel playing just as filler. And then when I go edit the show before posting in the archives, one of the things I do is remove that because the only reason it's there is just to give me a little time. Anyway. Uh, and I'm sure people heard that in other segments, though, about that guy. I mean, and it's so sad because one guy's like, I'm a warehouse worker at Target in Apple Valley. And then he's spending two grand. That might be his last two grand. And then he ends up winning, I guess. But anyway. Well, yeah, and, and that's one of the few that wins. The, the ones that lose, they never show. But what's uh, I did, I'm not sure if I mentioned this on any of the shows yet, but I did a good deed a few weeks ago where I was on a Facebook group and there was a woman who was putting on a surprise party for her boyfriend's 50th birthday. And one of the things she was going to get for him was the D lucky experience. And I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. So I, I talked to her privately and I told her what is really the story with D lucky. And I talked her out of getting the D lucky experience. So I, I did my good deed for the day. Very nice. Anyway, Getting back to this situation with uh, VIP Preferred. So that was the way I left it back then. That nobody could hit me with them again because my limits were set to zero. So, okay, let's fast forward to June 2023. And I'm on WSOP.com and I'm not doing very well. I, I had money already on there from previous times I played. So the money's been sitting there for a while. So I didn't need to deposit so I'm playing a cash game, and, and so I, I lost some. I didn't bust my account, but I, I was coming fairly close to busting my account. And then I quit for the day, down, and then I come back the next day, and I saw there was a player sitting heads up who, for my previous play with him, I didn't think was very good. I'm not going to say who it is. Actually, I don't know who it is in real life. I just know the screen name, but I'm not even going to say the screen name. I don't want to shame the person. But uh, my opinion was that they weren't very good, at least from the limited sample size of play that I had played with them. So I was, unlike most other times where there's a guy just waiting alone heads up, I don't ever go sit because that's usually a very good player. This was uh, an exception where the person I thought was not very good and I did want to play them heads up. So I didn't have the bankroll to do it on WSB.com. I had like 300 bucks left on there. So that was not going to cut it. So I wanted to put more money on. So I go, okay, time to deposit. So I go click on deposit, and then I see the bad news. The bad news 
was that the way I could instantly deposit money through my bank account was, yep, you guessed it, VIP preferred. (laughs) And remember, that was disabled for me. So I couldn't use VIP preferred. It wasn't just that I hate them at Global Payments for everything that they let happen and their dismissive attitude when I called them when I discovered what occurred and they were dismissing me, that I was crazy and didn't know what I was talking about. Not only was that whole situation very frustrating and time-consuming, but now I cannot deposit anymore to play this person I want to play on WSP.com. But you may say, well, there's got to be other deposit methods, right? Well... That's what I thought. PayPal was one of them. Now, I'm not a big fan of PayPal, as you guys know. And I was very supportive of the lawsuit, the class action lawsuit that was being brought by attorney Eric Benzamokin. But I do have an account with PayPal. And I said, okay, well, at least I can use them. You know, uh, I don't love PayPal as a company, obviously, but at least uh, this will get me where I need to go with WSOP.com, and I did have high enough limits to where I could deposit to the site with PayPal and have the money I wanted on there to play this guy waiting heads up. So I go to PayPal, and I enter the amount, and it takes the information, and then it comes back with an error message. That, that's been disabled as well. So I have no idea what's going on. It, it just looks like it was disabling any kind of way I can deposit electronically to WSOP.com. It looked like, like everything that I could possibly use there was just disabled. I don't know how this should all connect because it's different companies, but maybe they let WSOP.com know that there was a problem and they just disabled all kinds of things like this. I, st- I couldn't call support then either because support at WSOP.com is, is closed after 9 p.m., which is awful. Well, there's one other way you can do it. Cash at cage. You can actually bring cash to the cage at one of various Caesars properties. Well, that wasn't as easy as I thought because the first cage I went to didn't do it. And then I was told to go to another property's cage. So I went to the other property's cage and... It was. I was picturing I was just going to drop $3,000 there. That's what I wanted to put on there. I was going to just drop $3,000 cash to the cashier, give them my account name, and then they'd say, okay, thank you, you're credited, goodbye. No. I first had to give them all the information and fill it out on a form. Then they need to, quote, process the form. And I said, well, what do you mean process? Well, we need to enter it all, and we have to wait for the system to respond. So I had to then step away and wait for them to do this. And then they'll call me back over there. So then they they call me back over there after I wait. Then they have to actually take the cash from me at that point and then deposit it and then have me sign something after they process the cash that I've actually given them. So that's like this multi-step process. I think I had to keep coming back and forth to the cage like three times before the whole process was complete. And this was standard. This wasn't even like something went wrong. So it took longer than I thought. So what a pain in the ass this whole thing was. And I'm sitting there fuming 
because this shouldn't be necessary. I should just be able to use my bank account like I did before. Here we are in 2023, and I cannot deposit electronically to WSOB.com. It's crazy. I had to actually go physically give cash to the cage. So I'm walking back and uh, going back to my hotel, and I'm thinking, number one, I hope this guy hasn't left, because this is not someone who's like there every day. There's certain players in WSOB.com that are waiting every single day there to play heads up. Those guys are crushers. You don't want to play them heads up. But this guy was not one of them. This is not someone that I've seen waiting before, except that one day. So I'm thinking, please tell me he hasn't left. So I get back to the room. Good news, he has not left. But I have a second thought. My second thought is, what if I run bad and I'm losing to this guy? What if I want to reload? Well, I can't. (laughs) It was such an ordeal to get that 3,000 on. I just was not going to go do it a second time. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take my shot with this 3,000 plus the 300 I had on there already. And if it wins, it wins. If, if I bust it, it's frustrating, and I would reload if it were easy, but I'm, I, I can't do it. I'm just not going to go back there a second time to cash it, cage it. So this is it. So Trader Ruski, do you think that this $3,000 held up, or you think I chunked it off and found myself with the account showing that I had... Zero point zero. What do you think happened with that 3,000? Because I did play the guy, I'll tell you that. You know, being the optimist that I am, Druff, I think he ran it up to 7,500. Okay, well, I ran it down. I immediately started losing. And then a third guy kept joining, who was a good player, but he just couldn't... The third guy was funny. He couldn't really make sense of what was going on with this game because the guy kind of knew that it was like one guy who's waiting heads up versus a semi-regular on the site so he's like i can't understand the value of this game but he was like he could tell this person was trying to figure out what was happening so he kind of kept joining and leaving but the one i was there to play he was just getting lucky on me so my 3300 was all the way down to 600 and I was prepared to lose the final 600, which was not going to last very long at the game I was playing. I only had maybe one or two hands left that I could lose. And I pictured it busting, and I pictured uh, me cursing out the window of how much I hate global payments. But then I won. And I got the account back to 1100 and then I start to lose again. I go, oh my God. See, this is, this is, why can't I just put on more money here? I hate playing like this. I hate playing like I'm short stacked into tournament and I've got to kind of preserve my stack. I'm like, I, I want to just play normally. I, I want to have a proper cash roll on the table. But I couldn't. Well, but then I won a succession of hands and got almost back to 3,000. So I thought, well, what do I do now? Should I keep on playing or just be happy I almost got all my money back and quit even though what I was assuming about the guy, about problems with his game, I believed more than ever. So I really did believe I had a good edge in this game. I, I saw the guy making some pretty egregious mistakes in, in heads up against me. He wasn't like a mega fish or anything, but he, he was making some egregious mistakes that good players won't make. So I was considering just quitting him at that point. But I said, no, why did I go through all this just to quit when I got almost all my money back? F it, I'm, I'm here to make money. So I continued... And then I lost back $1,000. <laughs> and I think, shit, that's a, maybe I should have quit. But I go, no, no, I can't have this mindset. I, if, if this is a positive EV spot, which I'm convinced it is, 
even though it's not ideal that I can't reload, I, I've got to keep at this. So I kept at it, and then I went on another streak. Anyway, when the whole thing was said and done, it wasn't that far from what Trader Ruski guessed. I ended up with 6200 in my account, and at that point I needed to go to sleep because I had an event the next day early. So I quit, and uh, this guy had plenty more money. I just uh, had to get some sleep. So uh, I figured that was a good note to quit the night, and I did. So happy ending, I guess. Was that other guy there then to jump in and uh, take your spot? No, the, 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 no the, the, the one I was playing just left when I left. I mean, it was, it was very late at night, so he was probably tired. But anyway, uh, and, and you know, I didn't have much experience with this guy I did play, so it's possible there's just an off night for him. Maybe he is a good player and he just wasn't playing well that day. But I just noticed from playing with him a little bit earlier, I was just noticing some pretty egregious mistakes and going, you know, if if this guy plays me heads up, I can't see how he'll be any better. Because these weren't mistakes like which good heads-up players are sometimes making full ring, like playing too many hands or playing too aggressively. I, I was just seeing like dumb things that were being done that just uh, was demonstrating a lack of understanding of, of, of some of the fundamentals of, of winning limit hold'em. So that, that's, that's why I chose to play the guy. But you know, sometimes people will have bad days and just not play like themselves. So maybe that's what was happening. But whatever it was, that day I was right about him, and I was happy I made the decision. Not just on the overall result, but even had I busted that 3,000, I would have been happy with the decision to have played him, even uh, if it didn't work out. So that, that's the good thing here. But the bad thing was that freaking global payments, because of that bullshit with money being stolen out of my account, I can no longer deposit in any electronic way to WSOP.com, which is a shitty handicap to have. So I'm going to have to try to work this out. And I haven't talked to their support yet, which is crappy by the way so uh all i can say is uh fuck global payments that, that's the takeaway here i want to do now the hustler casino live segment about the million dollar game so i would give a little intro here about the million dollar game and then we'll get to some specifics about what occurred the million dollar game was a new concept that hustler casino live came up with and it required a million-dollar buy-in for every single player at the game. And it was planned way in advance, and it was to take place over a uh, five-day period from May 26th through 30th. So that's a lot of days to have for a game that most people either couldn't afford or would choose not to buy into. But given that they've had a lot of high-stakes games on Hustler Casino Live since it started almost two years ago, they have accumulated a number of people that do have the money and would like to gamble for that amount. And they got together a pretty good lineup of people to cycle in and out throughout these five days. So they, they had a lot more people willing to play than the nine that would fit at the table. I'm forgetting if it was eight or nine-handed, but whatever it was, they they had a lot of alternates to come in, so they didn't have to have the same players playing all five days. So this was like a pre-World Series event. It had nothing to do with the World Series, and in fact, it wasn't in Las Vegas. It was at Hustler Casino, of course, in Gardena, California. But 
you know, it seemed like an interesting concept. A, a lot of people were interested in watching this. I know on Poker Fraud Alert in the Flying Stupidity section of our forum, where it's kind of just people talking about random things, a lot of whom don't play much or any poker anymore. Some of those people said they were actually interested in watching this. So from that standpoint, from the hype standpoint, it was success already. It was something that people had a lot of interest in watching, even ones who were not all that into streamed poker. But how was it going to work out? Nobody knew because this was a new concept and it wasn't clear if Number one, this is going to be interesting. Uh, number two, if all the people who said they were going to play actually would show up. And uh, number three, if they would really have enough material for uh, five days worth of games. So it was a pretty aggressive venture there. Initially, they were promoting that uh, among the people who were going to be part of it were... Eric Person, Mickey Moz, remember, who was a guest on this show and claimed that uh, he was a winning casino gambler, even though he failed to explain how he could win at a lot of these unbeatable games, or games where they are beatable, but he's not doing the things to normally beat them. Rob Young, Rampage, also known as uh, Ethan Yao is his real name, a, a young, kind of more recent poker pro and streamer personality. Then... The guy they call uh, Blank Check Ben, he is a uh, crypto guy who has a lot of money from that and plays in these games. Nick Airball, Stanley Tang, the founder of DoorDash, who is now a billionaire, so obviously he can afford it. Doug Polk, and they were also hoping to get Alan Keating, but as I mentioned on our last show, he had a falling out with them and said he was not going to participate in this. So they were hoping that all or most of these people would actually show up and play. They were not contractually bound to do so, so any of them could cancel at any time. But they were hoping that they would get enough of these players to make five days' worth of content. They also picked up two players who were more associated with playing on streams, or actually not really streams, but TV shows in the 2000s. That would be Tony G, who was the founder of Poker News, of course, and since has done a lot of other things, and Jean-Robert Balland. And people were very excited to see this because uh, both of these guys were a lot of action. Both of them were very talkative and talked a lot of trash, and they were good for TV. So add them to the normal list, uh, the normal list of uh, Hustlers Casino Live players, and you, you're going to have a pretty interesting game, plus the fact that everybody's in for a million. The, the whole thing seemed like uh, it had a lot of potential. There were some that were very skeptical about Mickey, whether he would really show up with a million dollars in play. It seemed like the other times he appeared on the stream, he would show up without very much money at all, lose it, and then just leave. So now how is he showing up with a million? But uh, he was claiming he's going to play, so why would he say that and not show up? Uh, people were trying to guess on that. So that was the run-up to this whole thing. And... Then came the actual game. 
and it was underwhelming, to say the least. The first day, people were describing it as boring, nitty, just uninteresting. Everybody was tight. Nobody had any personality. Now, you may say, wait a minute, nobody had any personality. What about Nick Airball? Well, he was not in the game. I'll get to why shortly. He was there in the building. He just was not in the game. We'll get to that in a minute. Doug Polk, he was not there. I don't know if he couldn't make it those days, whatever it was. He just was not in California. So he was not part of the game yet. He was planning to come later. What about Eric Person? You may not like him, but he's kind of uh, boisterous and outspoken. Well, he claimed he couldn't make it. Some people theorized it was because he is starting a poker room at the soon-to-be-destroyed Tropicana in Las Vegas, and that uh, because they're now associated with Live at the Bike, which we'll talk about some other time, that maybe they didn't want him to appear on there. And he's claiming that's not the reason, but whatever it was, he canceled and said he can't come to any of these days. So no more Eric Person. Alan Keating, we already heard about him, that he was refusing to come on. He wanted some ownership in the show. He felt that he did a lot to help build it and that he deserved an after-the-fact piece. And Ryan and Nick said no. So he they had some drama on Twitter spaces, and he wasn't going to come on. Mickey canceled, which we'll do a whole separate thing about shortly. But uh, we'll skip past that right now. But he was not going to come. This was dropped on them at the last minute. But hold on. We did have two people in that lineup on the first day that should have been interesting. We had Tony G, and we had John Robert Balland. However, what has changed about Tony G and John Robert Balland since the 2000s? Well, you can say a lot of things. John Robert is no longer broke. He's playing in high stakes cash games all the time since he got to be friends with uh, Dan Bilzerian. And his life situation is very different than it was in the 2000s. And Tony G, he's gotten involved in. Uh, Lithuanian politics, and uh, he's done a lot of other things since his days of being the obnoxious guy making fun of Russians on TV. But something else changed about them. What is it? Well, it's something that's also changed about me during all that time. It's something that changed about Trey Daruski, who sounded like he was about to say something. They're old. Yes, we all got older. And they did not have the energy on this broadcast like they had in the 2000s. They were not raucous, crazy guys in their 30s who were coming on stream to cause trouble. They were men over 50 who Donald Trump would describe as low energy like Jeb Bush. Low energy was really the best way to describe both of them. They were not the guys you remembered from the 2000s, personality-wise. And this is not a slam against them. The truth is that people change over time. And a lot of times the guys with the loud and wild personalities when in their 20s and 30s, by the time they're over 50, they just don't have it anymore. They, it's just not really them. It's either from maturity or just a change in energy level. Or sometimes both. So both of them just seemed quiet and low energy. You'd never guess that they were the same guys as back in the 2000s, if you didn't know better. Like, if, if someone who never watched them in the 2000s watched this 
and you said, oh, yeah, these guys are really fun to watch on TV back then, people would say, what? These guys aren't fun at all. They're just kind of quiet. They're just kind of sitting there. They kind of look depressed. And I don't think they're really depressed, and they really don't have anything to be depressed about. In fact, uh, their lives have uh, gone quite well since then. It's just they weren't really into the whole stream poker thing, and they especially were not there to put on a show. They were just too old. In case you're wondering, John Robert is 53, and Tony G is 50. So I can't really make old jokes about them or look down on them for their age because I'm right in between the two of them. I'm 51. So I, I do have a right to comment on this because I'm right in that age group. But yeah, people change over time. And especially when it comes to this sort of thing, where someone who's very energetic on a stream like that in the thir- in their 30s, uh, it may be a very different matter when you see them in their 50s. And that's what we had that night. So you had those two being just very quiet. And everybody else just kind of did not display any form of real personality. So there was no personality in the game. And there was nobody who was really wanting to gamble. And one of the problems was that the blinds weren't big enough So even though they were all deep stacked, everybody was not wanting to get involved in big pots unless they have a monster hand. And so what you really need is both sides having a monster hand in order for a lot of money to get in. Because everybody's thinking about, hey, I don't want to shoot off the million dollars here. Even guys like Stanley Tang, who can afford it, don't want to because you're shooting off a million dollars on stream. And who, who wants to be known as the guy who does that? So everybody's just very deep there. And there's a psychological hurdle also of just the fact that it's a lot of money. Again, even if you can afford it, it's still a it's still million dollars. And nobody wants to just crazily gamble that type of money. So that the whole mood there was nobody wanted to put a lot of money into the pot. And nobody wanted to talk. And it was very boring. You, you, you would never think that watching a million-dollar buy-in game on Hustler Casino Live would be boring, but so many people were describing it that way. And you know what? Before I read any of the comments, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, you know, what's my problem here? I can't enjoy this. This is I don't watch very much stream poker. It's just not my thing. But how come I'm finding this boring? How come I'm really wanting to just turn this off and, and move on? The only reason I'm like kind of forcing myself to watch parts of this is because I know I'm going to talk about it on the show, but like, I don't find this interesting at all. And then I'm reading all the comments on Twitter in their own chat room and everybody's bashing it. Everybody is complaining that it's boring, that there's no action. One of the comments in the chat room really stuck with me, just some random, I don't know who it was, but some random in the chat room for Hustle Casino Live said, throw an extra card in the deck already. (laughs) it wasn't a bad suggestion they were getting so desperate for any hand they could show that was significant action that a hand was highlighted on poker news now to hustler casino live's credit this was poker news doing it so i can't uh really blame hustler casino live but the tweet says 1.1 million dollar pot at hustler casino live well that sounds great. Well, except 
it was two people with the nut straight who put almost all the money in on the river because they knew they couldn't lose. <laughs> that's, that's not a real $1.1 million pot if both people are putting in the money on the river when they have the nuts. That, that's not very interesting. It could be a billion-dollar pot. It would be interesting if, if you know they both cannot lose. So it started off with like 43,000 people watching, something around that. And it was declining. Throughout the day, it was declining. And they started like 6 p.m. or something Pacific time. So, yeah, it was 9 o'clock Eastern. Maybe they'll lose some people going to sleep, but it seemed to be dropping a lot quicker than just you'd expect the time to be doing it, especially on the first day of this. It just wasn't interesting. People didn't enjoy it. Now, that Hansen kid, Bart Hansen, he was comment. He was the one of the commentators. And uh, I'm not going to give him any kind of criticism here because he did a great job commentating. And he did all he could to make it interesting. But the problem was the game itself wasn't interesting. So it doesn't matter how good of a commentator you are. If the game itself is boring then your commentating can only do so much to improve it. That was not a good first day for Hustler Casino Live between all the people that dropped out, including some at the last minute, and those that were playing were just not interesting, and they didn't have any pots that just were going to become huge just from the nature of the way the hands were dealt. There were just no cooler hands that led to anything all that interesting happening. Kind of foreshadowing... At 11.38 a.m., Rob Young, remember he was one of the people in the game. This is the day following the first day. Remember, it was May 26th through 30th. So May 27th, Rob Young tweeted, I've been thinking about last night's game. I think it's too tight and deep. Players like to run it twice and can't get all in at 1,000 big blinds. I would reduce the minimum buy-in to 500K. Even 250K is fine. We'll be the same faces at 1 million, Players who want to buy in for a million still can. So, I don't know. You know, Rob Young is not a decision maker here. But can you really have a million dollar buy-in game that is promoted as a game where you have to buy in for a million dollars and yet on day two allow a 500k buy-in? Answer, yes. (laughs) That's unfortunately what they did day two the buy-in was 500k not a million which i thought made for terrible optics even if it did increase action it made for terrible optics it was like already admitting defeat it was already saying okay the million dollar game was a failure let's try a 500k game that's really what they did after the first day was a dud they had it a 500K buy-in at that point. Now, had it not been called the million-dollar game, if it was just called the big game, and then the million, the minimum buy-in was a million, and then they decided that was a mistake, and they decided 500K the next day, that wouldn't be as bad. But to call it the million-dollar game, and on day two of it, you're buying in for 500K, it's really, really dumb. Hustler Casino Live retweeted what Rob wrote, And indeed, they decided that's what they're going to do, make it 500K. And it's very embarrassing. 
you look at the chip count at the beginning, the only one who bought in for a million, ironically, was Rob Young. But Tony G, 500K. Another player named uh, Charles bought uh, 500K. John Robert, 500K. Aussie Matt, a player who was uh, new to that day, 500K. Huss, who was uh, a new player, 500K. And uh, Ben, 500K. So everybody bought 500K except for uh, Rob Young. And the second day, the viewership was already much lower. It was, for the most part, in the high 20s, like 27,000, which is a far cry from the day before. It started out at 43 and held around 40 for a while until it fell from people being bored. Here, they, they were already under 30 for most of the time on day two. Got a lot of criticism for lowering it to 500k and uh, this whole thing was looking like a big fail now for hustler casino itself this did good things for them not the lowering of the buy-in but every single cash table on property at hustler casino live was filled almost uh, 24 hours while this thing was running so, yeah, very late at night, there would be some open. But for the most part, the entire day, they couldn't even have the space to run all the games they wanted to run. And it's not a tiny casino, Hustler. It's not like Commerce, but it's not a small casino either. So all their cash tab- tables were filled. So this really brought a lot of people down there, even though you're not going to get a very good view of the action if you're playing any of the games there. People kind of just wanted to be there for it. So th- this was uh, definitely... Uh, a good promotional device for Hustler Casino itself, which is a different company than Hustler Casino Live. Hustler Casino Live is owned by Ryan and Nick, and uh, Hustler Casino was uh, founded by Larry Flint, who's now dead. I don't know who technically owns it now, owns it now that he's dead, but uh, totally different ownership. But, but anyway, they're associated, though, and uh, this really did a lot for Hustler, which uh, pays Hustler Casino Live. I'm not sure what their exact deal is. So Ryan Feldman, who's usually a genius with putting together great lineups and coming up with innovative gimmicks, this one really looked like a fail. Sounded good on paper, but it just wasn't working out in practice. And then the adjustment down to 500K I thought was embarrassing and the the wrong adjustment. Now, an adjustment they should have made was getting interesting people in the game, at least, who will, at least from a personality standpoint, make it something you'd want to watch. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. Uh, I, I read you who was in day two, and it, it wasn't particularly interesting. And what about Airball? He was there both days, but Ben, I think it was Ben, didn't like him and was insisting that uh, Airball is not allowed in the game. And I think at one point, uh, Jean Robert, who was stuck on day two, he was stuck a lot of money in, in day two, uh, he wanted the game to stay shorter, so when Airball could have joined at that point, uh, Jean Robert demanded he doesn't join. So Airball didn't get to be part of either of those first two days, so any potential drama from him that could have brought the viewers. And people were saying, let's have Airball. Like It's funny because he had all these people hating Airball for the way he treated Berkey and the, and the way he was uh, just acting like a dick for a lot of the year. Uh, with all the hatred of Airball, boy, everyone wanted to see him. Because at least he was going to spice it up. At least he would be interesting to watch. <laughs> People are like, yeah, br- yeah, Airball may be a douche, but bring him on. We want a douche here. We want to watch someone who's interesting. These, these people are, are making us fall asleep. 
So this wasn't a good combo, and people are thinking, how are they even going to get five days of content out of this? And indeed, they did not get uh, five days of content out of this. They ended up canceling one of the days. And that really started to make people wonder what is going on. Some people even thought maybe this is a complete cancellation and that they're just not going to finish it off. But that is not what happened. A few things changed in their favor. Despite all the drama, Alan Keating decided that he didn't want to sit on the sidelines anymore and he played after all. And the truth is, with a lot of these players who play these big games on stream, why do they do it? They do it because they like the attention. Now, Garrett was doing it because he wanted to make money. That was uh, Garrett's thing as he gets into these great games that are much easier to win money at than other high-stakes games. And he gets to have a lot of say in who's in the lineup, so this was a big money-making opportunity for him, and that is now lost because of his falling out with uh, Hustler Casino Live. But the rest of these guys are not necessarily there to make money. The rest of these guys are there because they like all the attention. So as angry as Alan Keating was, I don't think he had a right to be angry, but he was angry. That was true. And he felt that uh, he deserved a piece of the company and he wasn't given it and he felt insulted. Even with all that, the problem is that if he walks away in a huff, then he doesn't get to be part of stuff like this. And he does not get the attention that he craves. Yeah, he was saying, oh, I'll start my own show, but that's easier said than done. So Keating realized, hey, you know, it's easy to say I'm not going to be part of this anymore, but do I really not want to be part of this anymore? So, of course, uh, Keating came back, and I'm not that surprised to have seen that. So Keating ended up playing after all, and that was one of the people who returned. Then uh, Doug Polk was uh, coming in. Then uh, Tom Dwan agreed to be part of it. So even though he's not a super interesting guy from a personality standpoint, he is a legendary high-stakes player from going back to the 2000s, and people were happy to see him in the game. So already they were getting a a better lineup. Uh, Nick Airball was able to get in the game. So things were starting to look up. They, They had potential for this to get better and to be better viewing. One of the problems on the May 28th, the Day 3 broadcast, came from a player named Wesley. Wesley had been on previous streams and bought in for very large amounts of money, but then people were complaining that Wesley was a fraud. People were saying that uh, basically he'd buy in for all this money, but then play tight. So he'd pretend like he's this big gambler and that he wants to show up at these games with big money and, and risk big money. And then in reality, the whole thing's just a facade and he's playing very tight. And I've seen this before on non-streamed games. I've even seen this at uh, regular cash games in a casino where there's no cap 
for the buy-in for a no-limit game, and you'll have some guy showing up buying in for some absurd amount, way above anyone at the table's uh, amount of money that they have out, out there. But it, it's just to show off or to make it look like they're a big gambler, but then they're like super tight. So the whole thing is just a ruse. And then, of course, if anyone happens to get a very big stack to where it could really damage this person, then they can just get up and leave. So, like, for example, if you buy in for 100K at a game where the biggest stack on the table is 5K, that doesn't mean anything. You're not risking 100K because nobody can bust you. Nobody can take your 100K. They can only take 5K at most. So it was starting to be alleged that this is what Wesley was doing, that he was just buying in big for previous games. And and for this game as well, he, he bought in for uh, $3 million to this game and announced beforehand he was going to do it. And then play super tight. So this is what Mike Mattisau tweeted on May 28th. How big of a scammer is Wesley? Guy representing to be a big shot buys in $3 million and had a 13% VPIP. That means uh, voluntarily put into pot. So he's saying that other than the blinds, he was entering hands uh, 13% of the time where he has to put in money. And... He just open folds to a 3K open when he has king-queen by airball. Hashtag phony. So he's saying, hey, airball's this loose player, and Wesley's got king-queen and won't even play that. He won't even call it. He folds it pre, even when a loose player just opens to 3K. And he only's uh, putting in the pot uh, 13% of the time money voluntarily pre-flop. So, okay, I mean, I I won't say he's a scammer. He didn't scam anybody, Wesley. But you can say he's a phony. You can say that he's a poser. So a lot of people on Twitter were agreeing, or at least semi-agreeing with what Mattisau was saying. It wasn't just Mattisau either. Like, a lot of people were saying it, but Mattisau's tweet uh, got the most attention. It got uh, 455 likes. Uh for Wesley to show up with $3 million and then be the tightest guy at the table, people just thought this was off-putting. And they were mocking him. I even saw this at a Limit Hold'em game last year. I was at a 8160 Limit Hold'em game and some guy sits down and uh, he was fairly young, probably 30 years old or so, and sits down with a ton of chips which isn't necessary at Limit Hold'em. You just need enough to where you can play through a hand and, and not have to reload if you lose it. You just want to have enough to where you not constantly have to get up and reload. But you don't need a massive number of chips to start with in, in Limit Hold'em because there's no all-ins or anything. But he sits down with a ton of chips, talks a whole lot, keeps talking, keeps, keeps talking about how he's already drunk and is ordering drinks and kept talking how he loves to gamble. But the whole thing was phony. The guy was the tightest player at the table. Every time he was raising post-flop, or even pre-flop for that matter, if he's re-raising you, he seemed to have something big. You never saw him showing down even mediocre hands. And I was watching closely, and I go, this guy's hardly playing any hands at all. And when he puts in money after the flop, he's always got some part of it. If he's raising you, he's always got the goods. So this whole thing's an act. (laughs) So I just adjusted. I, I, I saw this very quickly. I adjusted very quickly, and I made a lot of tight laydowns against him. So uh, 
all he did by this whole speech, at least with me, is that it brought my attention to watch him more closely, and I noticed it was bullshit. But this is a limit hold'em game. But I've seen this happen in No Limit, and this uh, and Wesley here in the stream. I don't know how, why he thought this was not going to be noticed. Now Wesley tried to claim that this was just a circumstance that in reality he was just tight because he was dealt a lot of trash. So he wasn't intending to do this. He would show up with uh, three million intending to play with it. It's it just he did, wasn't dealt many good hands, so what can he do? But people on Twitter weren't buying that. They just kept insisting that he was pretending to be an action player when he's really not. Daly posted in the thread, we've got one of these referring to a Wesley type locally. We call him fake action. Loudest guy challenging everyone else to gamble constantly. Always forgets to straddle. Everyone's on to him and he's mad that he can't get into games anymore. Then Airball, unfortunately, was uh, not his normal loose self. He was running his mouth a lot, but he was folding a lot. It still wasn't going the way they wanted to. And as I said, after that day three, they had that weird day off. The only notable thing that really happened on day three was Tony G got up and left in a huff. And he complained about a hand being a setup. Now, setup can mean a few things, I guess, but it was kind of implied like he thought that he was being cheated in some way. Now, setup can also be used to describe just a crappy situation that's a cooler where you happen to get a hand that comes down very badly for you. It could be a set over set. It could be a flop set against the draw where eventually the draw gets there after a lot of money goes in. And setup doesn't necessarily mean any cheating happened. It could just mean the way the deck happened to land that it set you up to lose a lot of money. But he stormed off angrily after losing this one particular hand and muttered about a setup. So it did kind of seem like that he thought he was being cheated. He even said something like, this isn't right. This is a setup. So he had uh, quit abruptly after losing pocket aces. And he was already losing on the stream. This wasn't the only hand that he lost. You know, he was already down. But he had pocket aces against Airball's 10-9. And the flop was 10-7-8, and the turn was 6. So when Airball bet, then Tony G just uh, folded the aces and got up and stormed off and talked about the setup. However, let's look at some things here. 10-9 flopping 10-7-8, that's a Damn good flop for 10-9. So you can't complain that your aces didn't hold up at that point. Your aces are not always going to hold up. You know, Aces are not guaranteed money. They're just the best starting hand. So aces going up against 10-9, it's not like that's a lock. It's not like aces against ace-king where that's going to win 95% of the time. 10-9 is not like that. You'd much rather have the aces than 10-9, especially in a runout where you're uh, just putting it all in. And that's not what they did there, but... Uh, 10-9 is a much better hand to be against aces than something like ace-king. And it's a lot better than a lot of hands. In fact, the very best hand you can have against aces is 6-7 suited of suits that are different than the aces. That's the very best situation you can have against aces. A lot of people don't know that. They uh, 
assume you would be some other higher cards. It's not. But 10-9 is not bad against aces either. Now, 10-9 on the board of 10-7-8, that is obviously a very good flop to the 10-9, and there's a lot of ways it can outrun the aces because you've got top pair and you've got an open-ended trade trough. A lot of ways the aces can end up on the wrong end of that. And if you're holding aces and you see the board is 10-7-8, you're not thrilled. I mean, there's worse boards for aces, of course, but 10-7-8 is not the board you're hoping for when you have aces. Aside from flopping an ace and then having the rest of the board be safe, a safe non-ace board, if you have aces, would be something like 10-4-2, all different suits. That's a good board for aces, not 10-7-8. So especially since Airball had 10-9, he's already got a very big piece of that flop. And then the turn six, I mean, yeah, that made Tony lose the hand, but he was able to fold. He didn't lose that much money because he was able to toss it on the turn. So if this is really a setup, and it's not clear what he means by a setup, it's not like Airball somehow bluffed him in a spot that's very hard to bluff aces. And he thinks it's because Airball uh, figured out how to get him off the hand and knew what he had. Here, Airball really had the best hand and he folded correctly. So the only way he can claim it's a setup is if he's trying to say like that they somehow set up the order of the cards. But if they did that, they wouldn't do it this way because Airball didn't get much money out of it. If they really set it up, they would be doing something like where Tony would have pocket sixes and Airball would have 10-9 and the flop would be 10-6-2. And then Airball would overplay it. They'd get the money all in and then the board would go 7-8, runner-runner, and, and then he'd have the straight. That would be a setup. Not uh, the open-ended straight draw and top pair on the flop and then the six on the turn that makes the obvious straight and then Tony G can fold. So I don't think that was suspicious at all. I think that was just Tony being angry in the moment. Well, I think he realized it the following day, because at 12.37 p.m., Tony had already gone to Las Vegas. I'm not sure why, but he took a picture of himself wearing a shirt that said the million-dollar game. They must have given this out to the participants. Said the million-dollar game, May 26th through 30th, 2023. And it's showing him with two thumbs up, smiling he's somewhere outdoors in vegas and he wrote great to finally be back in vegas thank you hustler casino live for having me play great team great hosts i will be back baby so he likely cooled down and realized this was not a setup and that's just the way it went aces lost and realized that his last appearance there on that show was ending with him storming away and making kind of a veiled allegation about cheating. So he wanted to make sure that everybody understood that uh, he did not feel negatively about Hustler Casino Live and didn't think he was cheated and he'll be happy to come back. So I think, I'm sure that's the reason he took that picture. So here you had day three. You had Tony G storming off. That was the only personality he really showed the whole time. You had Airball playing a lot tighter than he normally does and just kind of being obnoxious, but not even that entertaining. You had Wesley buying in for $3 million and being the tightest guy at the table. So people were still not enjoying this. And Doug Polk was not in the game yet. And then they took that weird day off the next day. So coming into the final day, people were still feeling like Hustler Casino Live 
that they had failed with this uh, million-dollar game. So they had one final day, which was supposed to be day five. It was actually day four, because they skipped a day, to get this right. May 30th, Doug Polk almost canceled. He was feeling kind of sick. I'm not sure what was wrong with him, but he's not feeling super great today. But I will be showing up at the Million Dollar Game, and we'll try to hang in there for the sake of the show. <laughs> so it sounded like he wasn't in the mood to play, that he just was feeling under the weather, and he was willing to show up. On uh, day three, one other thing that happened was there was uh, a number of racist jokes and comments about people's mothers on Hustler Casino Live. And it was uh, mostly involving that guy Huss and Wesley. So there was some talk about that and whether this was appropriate and whether Huss crossed the line with some of the stuff he said. But then came day five. And day five kind of redeemed the Hustler Casino Live million dollar game to where people walked away not feeling it was a fail. So if you're going to have a good day, you want it to be on the last day, provided that everybody hasn't abandoned it, which they hadn't. You know, people still kind of were keeping an eye on it, even though it wasn't getting the ratings anymore like it was at the beginning. If you had to pick a day to be good, you wanted it to be the last one. So Tom Dwan was at this game. Haralabos Vulgaris was at this game. Then you also had Doug Polk showing up, not feeling great, but he was there. Nick Airball, Wesley, this guy named Hank, someone who calls himself Hands with a Z, and Rob Young. So, okay, you know, decent lineup. Doug did not have a good day. Uh, he didn't play badly. He was just uh, He was just running poorly. One of the hands he got bluffed off of aces when he had the best hand on the river because uh, it was a board where it looked like aces could be the losing hand. And a uh, very big bluff was put against him for like 700K, and he just couldn't bring himself to call aces. It's one of these spots where uh, if you're convinced that your opponent has an overpair and you think he's willing to lay it down to your action, then it's actually uh, a decent spot to bluff. But you have to be pretty sure that the person's not going to smell your bluff in some way and that you've just shot off a lot of money. But that was a decent spot to try that move, especially for that amount of money. And Doug did lay it down. As uh, Brandon mentioned, the randomizing where Doug claimed that... uh, he was so close in that decision that he actually uh, randomized the decision by mixing up his two aces and deciding which one represents fold and which one represents call and then turn one over. And that was the one represent fold. So he uh, randomized himself into folding that huge pot instead of calling. So that was like a million dollar decision, more than a million dollar decision. So that was uh, interesting. He got into another hand where he did not have the best hand, and he was firing the whole way with a draw against Tom Dwan, who, of all things, had uh, flopped middle set on in a pretty safe board situation. Board was like, uh, I think, uh, 
King 7 4 or King 7 3, something along those lines. And then the turn was a 6, and the river was a 6. So Tom Dwan flopped middle set. Or it couldn't have been 3. It was King 7 2, maybe. Whatever it was, by the end, Doug had 5 high. Doug had 5 4 suited and had 5 high by the very end. Tom Dwan flopped middle set and had middle set full by the very end because of the running sixes. So Tom Dwan was uh, never putting in a raise here. And uh, the interesting thing was when uh, Doug put in a large bet on the river, which was a bluff, Tom not only didn't snap call it, but he also didn't raise which people wondered uh, with the way the action went. It just didn't seem likely that Doug had kings. And really, you know, what was the chances that Doug had sixes and then turned and rivered into quads? So there was a good reason to raise him. Yeah, I think it was king seven two. Because Doug could have had twos there and probably would have played it the same way. So uh, it's not like, Dwan felt like, oh, well, if I raise this and I get called, I have to have a worse hand. Because there were a lot of ways that uh, Doug could have a hand which was worse. So it was a little surprising he never put in a raise there. But, uh, of course, uh, Dwan didn't fold. He called it with the sevens. And he won a large pot there. So Doug ended up losing almost a million dollars on the stream. And then off stream, he continued playing and lost another 300K. And I know this because Doug revealed this on his Twitter, that he lost 1.2 million something total. And he broke it down from on stream and off stream. So very bad day for Doug there. He, <laughs> I guess he should have stayed home when he was uh, not feeling well. Just did not run well in that game. Then there was the hand that everybody has been talking about. And I will say something about this hand, that Hustler Casino Live played it the right way by promoting it because it's on delay. So remember, you're not seeing everything live. You're seeing it on a half an hour delay. It turned out it was probably more like a 40, 45 minute delay because the hand occurred, and then they announced the hand occurred without describing it, but told you you're going to want to see it. They claimed it would, quote, break the internet, which was a bit of an overstatement. But, you know, they're trying to get everybody to turn it on. But they said, turn on Hustler Casino Live in about half an hour, if you're not watching already, this hand's going to break the internet. And then a number of people who were there were echoing it, saying, oh, yeah, this is definitely going to break the internet. Oh, my God, this is going to be a huge thing. Well, it didn't quite live up to that. A hand that I would say did break the internet was the Robbie J. Lou Jack forehand. But the thing that ended up happening was an interesting hand, but it's not a shocking hand in any way, aside from the money that was involved. But they they did a good job for that 45-minute period or so, promoting it heavily and getting a lot of people to come in there and anticipate the hand coming. And then you didn't know which hand it was going to be or who it involved. So every time you saw a hand starting to develop into something, you say, oh, this is going to be it. Ah, uh, wait, no, it's not. So the hand in question actually ended up being one involving Wesley, 
and Tom Dwan. Now remember, Wesley was the one who was being criticized for buying in for a lot of money and then playing really tight and really cautious and being a fraud. So this was probably on his mind because Wesley was not playing that way on this final day. He was loosening up. So what Wesley ended up doing was after a lot of raising pre-flop, Wesley had ace-king and Tom Dwan had queens. So the problem in this spot, and if you've played No Limit Hold'em, you've probably been in this spot before yourself, where you have something like queens, if both people are deep stacked and let's say you're the one with the queens and the other person is coming at you aggressively, it can be very difficult to know what to do. Because if there's been a lot of raising pre-flop, you're afraid that they have aces or kings and that you're going to call off a lot of money with queens. But at the same time, you get a little worried, what if they have jacks or ace-king or what if they're just bluffing me and I fold the queens? So it can be very hard to know what to do once the pot gets bloated like that and your queens haven't flopped a set, it gets very hard to know whether you should be able to call a lot of action put out against you in a heads-up pot situation. So that's what developed here. So Wesley ended up missing the flop, but of course, after all this raising pre-flop, the pot's already very big. So here's the way the exact hand went down. Hank starts off with a ace-8 offsuit, and he opens with uh, 7,000. Wesley, with the ace-king offsuit, makes it 30,000 for a three-bet from the button. Tom Dwan had straddled, so he was under the gun, and he happened to get queens. You You always expect the straddler to have some crap hand because it can be anything, any two random cards, but he happened to have queens. So Tom, with his queens, then makes it 100K. At this point, Hank with the ace-eight folds. And then Wesley, five bets to 275K. And Tom calls. Now, this is where ace-king can be a pain in the ass in No Limit Hold'em. Ace-king doesn't play well in No Limit Hold'em after the flop. Because typically, if you get a lot of action with ace-king after the flop, you're beat unless it's not a deep game. So with ace-king, if you put someone all in pre-flop, then at least you're putting them to the test and might be able to get them to lay it down. But then the problem you can have is that if they call you, if they have kings or aces, you're screwed, especially aces. And if they have any pair, then it's basically a coin flip with you. In fact, they're a slight favorite over you. So the power of ace-king really comes pre-flop and it comes from the standpoint that you can put pressure on any hand except aces or kings and possibly get them to fold pre-flop. And if they call you, then unless they have aces or kings, then you're basically 50-50. And also if they're dumb enough to have called you with ace-queen or something like that, then you're way ahead of them. So the problem with Wesley making this one 275k is now he's bloated the pot and then if he doesn't hit the flop 
it can be hard to know what to do. And at that point, you have to kind of turn your hand into a bluff unless you happen to be lucky enough to run into an ace or king after the flops already come out without one. Now, they did have an ante in this game, a $3,000 ante. The blinds were a 500, 1,000, 2,000 with the 3,000 ante. The 2,000 was the uh, straddle. The smaller of the two stacks was about uh, 1.5 million, a little bit more. So this is pretty deep. But then once the pot gets bloated all the way to 275 pre, there's already 550K in there. And the effective stacks that are being played is only about uh, 1.2 something further behind. So the uh, five bet for Wesley was uh, overdoing it. It's kind of spewy. And then that causes him problems post-flop of what he wants to do. So with Dwan calling that, the flop comes 883 with two diamonds. So Dwan checks, Wesley bets 125, and Tom calls. On the turn is a five of hearts, so no flush hits, and it's a pretty dry board. Eight eight three five with with the West with uh, all the action from both of them pre flop. It's likely that all of this missed them. So Tom ch- checks again, and uh, Wesley then bets. The bet is three hundred fifty thousand, and Duan calls again. So then the river is a six of spades. So there's no flush possible. Wesley puts them all in for another 786,000. So none of this changed anything for Duan. There was no scare card. However, he can't beat threes, fives, sixes, eights, kings, or aces. So he has to think, what are the chances that Wesley has ace-king or maybe the other queens or is just spazzing off with jacks or or, uh, ace-king? And what are the chances that Wesley is just going crazy with something that's not one of these hands, just some crap? This was a $3.1 million pot if Tom were to call it. And amazingly, of course, we know from watching it that Tom would be making the correct call if he calls it. But amazingly, if he calls it, he will win the largest pot in televised poker history where it's not a cooler. It's not even a bad beat. It's just picking off a bluff. Of all things, if you expected a $3.1 million pot, you'd think it was maybe set over set. Something like that. Here it's uh, just pocket queens unassisted winning against the bluff. So Wesley then, after putting in the all-in, actually put his head down on the table. I don't know if he didn't want to give off tells, but some people thought maybe that is a tell, the fact that he's just putting his head down and doesn't want to watch. But there's one other factor to this that I haven't told you yet. Doug Polk somehow saw... Wesley's cards and told him that. So he saw that Wesley had ace-king. So Doug mentioned it, and then Wesley showed him and said, is this what you saw? 
And Doug said yes. And Doug mentioned that it's a raising hand or something like that. He said, oh, yeah, that, that's, yeah it's, that, it's a raising hand, something like that. It wasn't clear if Doug was being serious, but it did give away a little information that that was Doug's reaction. So, like, at that point, Tom could try to read from Doug both his reaction to seeing it and then his comments afterwards and also the reaction to all the action that's happening what Doug is probably thinking. It was a very unusual dynamic because you have a third person who shouldn't have the information of one of the hands, but but does because he happened to see it and has made it known that he saw it. So it's possible that Tom Dwan was watching of how Doug was acting and was thinking, okay, how would Doug be acting if he had aces or kings? What would Doug have said if Wesley showed him aces or kings after saying that he'd seen the hand. So that was another factor going on the whole way that may have made it a little harder for Wesley to get a bluff through if Doug ends up giving off any tells. It's bad enough if you give off a tell, but what if a third person at the table who's trying not to give off any tells, and I'm not saying Doug did give off any tells, I'm just saying that he was a third person who said he saw the hand and then was shown the hand and made a brief comment and then tried to keep a straight face the rest of the way. After some thinking, Tom called and dragged the pot. $3.1 million pot just for calling down pocket queens. Pretty good. So again, this hand doesn't break the internet, but it's interesting. And it was a good way to kind of finish off. This wasn't the actual end of the game, but it was close. It's the end of the whole series of million-dollar games, and it was uh, later in the evening. So it's kind of a nice semi-finale for Hustler Casino Live's Million Dollar Game. This got a lot of people talking, and by the time all the hype came about how this big hand that was going to break the internet was going to be broadcast in 30 minutes, which was actually about 45, they had 58,000 viewers, which was by far more than any point that this had been watched. So yeah, it was a little bit artificial because they got everybody spun up about this uh, amazing hand that was coming. But still, this showed that there was enough interest in the whole thing to where 58,000 individuals turned it on to watch. So between the Tom Dwan set that he just called the whole way, the Tom Dwan hero call down with Queens that was correct to win that record pot, the Doug Polk getting bluffed off of aces, we had a lot of interesting moments there on the final day. So if you ask people now, how was the million-dollar game, a lot of people will forget the boringness at the beginning. And they'll say, oh, yeah, that, that was good. Yeah, that was kind of cool to see some of these hands go down like this. But the truth is that a, a lot of it was kind of fail regarding uh, being entertaining and being compelling streamed poker. So with all that said... What can be learned from this whole thing by the owners of Hustler Casino Live? Brian and Nick. What are Brian and Nick possibly going to take away from the entire experience of running this? Because remember, they even skipped a day. The reason they skipped a day was because uh, yeah, they just didn't have enough content, I think, for five days of this. And they realized it, so they just made sure the last day had the potential to be good. And it was. But they only ended up doing four of the five days. 
and uh, there was a lot of criticism at the beginning. So what can be learned? And then we'll talk about Mickey. Well, number one, they need to get some harder commitments. And I know it's easier said than done because here you're asking these people to go play on stream for a million bucks. And uh, it's hard to say, oh, yeah, and if you want to play here, you have to commit in such and such hard way. And you you can't really penalize them. I know it's very hard to do, but at the very least, get people to say whether this is a hard commitment or close to a hard commitment or if it's a possible commitment to kind of get varying levels of commitment so you can understand what you're getting into and you can understand how to promote it. So you can say these people are are very likely to be there. These people might be there. These people could possibly be there and then be realistic with the audience so there's no shocks or disappointments from the whole thing. The second thing that they... uh, probably have learned is that they have to do something to make sure the game has action. You either have to have players you know are going to be action players or you have to make the blinds big enough to where a million dollar buy-in doesn't leave it too deep. Otherwise, people are too afraid to be the sucker getting it in for a deep stack with a hand that doesn't really justify it. People are much less willing to gamble when the stacks are deep. This is true in tournaments. This is true in cash. A lot of times the way to have a tight game is to have it be a deep game. So by making it deep, you can make the game boring. And I think they didn't really think about that before putting this together. So either they shouldn't call it the million-dollar game... And don't make it a million-dollar minimum buy-in. Or make it a million-dollar minimum buy-in and make the blinds higher. So that uh, I'm sure that they're going to be careful about that next time if they run this again next year. Another thing that they probably learned is that you can't count on people's personality being the same today as it was many years ago. So a an interesting person from the 2000s is not going to be necessarily interesting in the 2020s. Now, maybe they'll be interesting just in who they are in their history. Like, oh, I remember that guy. Oh, he's in the game. Cool. So I'm not saying not to have them. But you can't count on Jean-Robert Balland and Tony G carrying your game from a personality standpoint if they've mellowed out in their 50s. And that's exactly what happened. So I'm sure that uh, they're going to keep that in mind further if they invite some of these old-school players on that... I'm sure they'll be happy to have them, but you can't count on them to carry the show. Also, I think that they need to put more care into having a good first day. So really the ideal situation would be a good first day and a good last day, and then in between maybe where it's not quite as good. There is an old joke about an ad, I I forget what, company it was. It was for some razor company where the slogan was, where your first shave is as good as your last. May have been Gillette. I I forget which one it is, but uh, it was from a long time ago, I think in the 70s. It was from a point before I was shaving, so I didn't have to pay that much attention to it. It was during my lifetime, but I wasn't old enough to shave. Anyway, there was a joke at the time that the razors are good at first, And then uh, 
maybe you'll luck into a good shave at the very end before you throw it away. And one of the jokes at the time was, if the first shave is good and the last shave is good, then people forget everything else in between. And that actually stuck with me because that's actually true in a lot of things in life. If you take a vacation and the first day is good and the last day is good and everything else in between is going to fail, you can still feel like it was a good trip. If you go play a poker tournament and there's a lot of events like the World Series and you have a good first event, a good last event, and a lot of fail in the middle, you'll still probably have some good memories because the beginning and end were best. So a lot of times just the beginning and end being best can leave you with a good feeling even if uh, the middle isn't very good. So that, that all applies to that same joke about the Razors. So I think that's what they should be going for on Hustler Casino Live. They had the good last day, but they had a lousy first day. And part of the reason for the lousy first day was because it was just boring. In fact, that was most of the reason the first day sucked. They just didn't have a good lineup of people who are going to make for a compelling viewing. So I think they need to take care to open with some good people for the stream and make sure that some of them are ones who are very likely to show up and not break their commitment. Like, for example, Doug Polk. Whatever you think of him, I will say that Doug Polk is generally a man of his word and someone you can count on. So if Doug Polk says, I'm going to be here for the game, he's going to be there. And as you see, he showed up and played even though he kind of felt sick. So he did this, and I believe it when he tweeted that, that he was showing up for the good of the show. He didn't want to be someone who ruined the final day of it, even if it's from legitimately feeling ill. Now, if he was super sick, then he probably wouldn't have shown up. But as long as he was in a good enough condition to show up and play, even if he would just rather not be there, he's going anyway because he said he'll be there. And that's admirable, and I believe this. So that's the type of person that they should want on day one, who's going to be kind of a headliner there, not someone who says they're going to come, but then may cancel at the last minute. So definitely not Mickey Maz. Really, Eric Person is someone you can easily see doing that. Keating, like all, all those type of guys who, who are just kind of temperamental, you don't want them as the headliners of day one. You can put them in the middle, but in day one or the last day, you don't want that. And speaking of that, five days was too long. They should not have made it a five-day event. They realized that midway through and canceled, I believe, which was uh, day four. It ended up being a four-day event, even though it was billed as five. I also think that they have learned that dropping the buy-in to 500K in the middle of the whole thing was a mistake. It was terrible optics, and it made it look like the whole thing was a fail. So I'm sure they realized that that was not the right thing to do. That was not the adjustment they needed. Even if it was going to increase the action, it just uh, really kills the vibe of the whole thing. So these are some lessons they probably took away from it. And, you know, Ryan's a smart guy. I'm sure he realizes all or most of what I just said. And if they do this again, we'll probably see these adjusted. And they'll probably do it better the second time around. I want to move on and talk about Mickey Maz and his backing out of the Hustler game. And this caused a lot of controversy. Now, we had Mickey on here in December of 2021, 
and he was very rude to me, and he also made a false promise that he was going to show me his win-loss statements at the various casinos around Las Vegas, and was going to prove to me that he really is beating the games for millions of dollars like he claimed, because he made all kinds of statements about how he's killing the casinos for all this money, but was not explaining how, and he was claiming he was not counting cards. He was claiming that he's just beating games like uh, Baccarat and Blackjack without counting cards and, and other games you just can't understand how he'd be beating them if he's not cheating and he's not doing it through some kind of uh, massive loss rebate that the Blackjack... Uh, or what other table games uh, you can sometimes get, but the casinos tend to be careful these days not to over-loss rebate you to where it can become positive expectation. So it just seemed like he was BSing about his wins, and he was always being cagey about showing you any kind of proof, and it was always, oh, well, I can't show you what I'm doing or I'll give away my secret. So he just always hid behind that. And we talked for about an hour and a half on this show, and he still never prevent, presented any proof, but he did agree that he was going to meet with me and show me these win-loss statements for these different casinos to show how he's really winning. And I wasn't going to just let him handpick them and show me the ones he wants me to see at, at, a, at a casino where he happened to win. It, it was going to be where I was going to ask him to take me around to different casinos and we were going to ask for them to show what statements they have for him. And I was happy to sign an NDA or anything so I wouldn't be giving away his uh, finances to people. And I was going to keep to it. But, of course, this never happened. And he ignored me on Instagram after that when I attempted to ask why he wasn't keeping his promise on that. So I walked away from that even more convinced that he wasn't telling the truth about all this. Not that I ever thought he was telling the truth about winning all this money, but I walked away even more convinced that he really is not winning, at least not winning consistently or overall. Now, where all the money was coming from was still a mystery to me. It could have been family money. It could have been a trust. It could be something from his family that periodically distributes money to him. It could be a trust or something else like that. But it's not from crushing the casinos. And he wouldn't be the first one to posture as a winning gambler when they really have money from other sources. Some people just like to pretend they're successful at something. And that can get a lot more attention, especially if you're looking to be a social media star like he is. That can get a lot more attention than just saying, hey, I inherit all this money or I get all this money in a trust from my parents or grandparents every so often, that doesn't impress anybody. So that's what I think is probably going on with him. And how high does he really gamble? I don't know. He has been banned from a few casinos that he likes to brag about. They banned him because he's beating them. But uh, from what I'm hearing, it's more from behavior. I don't have confirmation on that, but that's what I've been hearing. Anyway, he did play on Hustler Casino Live a number of times, and he didn't do very well. But it didn't seem like this was a guy with just unlimited money to keep reloading. He wasn't like a Nick Airball type. Instead, he, especially in the last appearances he's had, he would show up with not all that much money and then bust it and then leave. 
So this definitely was not someone you thought was a candidate for the million-dollar game. He was never someone on Hustler Casino Live who came off like they just had endless money to play with. So while Nick Airball and uh, Mickey Moss both are young guys with uh, questionable sources of funds, shall we say, and both of whom may be receiving these funds from their families, uh, at least Airball, people kind of had the impression that he had a lot of money he had access to. And with Mickey, it was always questionable how much there really was left at this point. And it's possible that it's, it's a distribution that every so often comes where he does get money and then it uh, once it gets chunked off, he's got to wait again. But whatever it is, a lot of people were skeptical that he was not going to appear on Hustler Casino Live. And that if he did, that he was just going to play super tight and then find some emergency to leave. So he makes his appearance and, oh, sorry, I got to go because, uh, you know, my mother needs me. Goodbye. And gets up and leaves after playing super tight for an hour or two. I actually thought that was the most likely scenario, but it is not what ended up happening. He just ended up backing out of the game. Now, what would have been the point of this? Why would he claim he's going to play at the million dollar game and then back away from it? Well, there could be a few reasons. He could have never had the intention of appearing on it and just wanted to get attention for himself and his social media and maybe the the entire time he was looking to back out. It could be that he thought that he could convince people to back him in this and it didn't go through. It could be that he was expecting money from his family or wherever he is getting the money and it just didn't come through in time. So there could be a variety of reasons. What I do not believe is the reason he presented as to why he was backing out of the game. So have a listen to this. I'm here in the Hustler Casino Live headquarters office. I'm currently in their production room. I'm scheduled to play the $1 million game this Saturday. I think it's the 27th. Feldman called me in late tonight to let me know that he is going to be withdrawing one of my terms. Unfortunately, my most important term. So with that, I'm going to be withdrawing from the game. If you want to see me play, there's two days left. Send him a message. Let him know your opinions. Okay. So he doesn't describe what these terms are, just that Ryan Feldman gave him some kind of term that it was agreed to and then withdrew it. And then for that reason, since it was the most important term that Ryan had to agree to, Mickey is withdrawing it. And uh, he was recording this video from the Hustler production office, which made some people a little bit uneasy that Mickey had access to that. But it looked like Mickey went down there and maybe had a last minute discussion with them and then recorded this to show that he's withdrawing. He didn't give any more details. I'm here in the Hustler Casino Live headquarters office. I'm currently in their production room. I'm scheduled to play the $1 million game this Saturday. I think it's the 27th. Feldman called me in late tonight to let me know that he is going to be withdrawing one of my terms. Unfortunately, my most important term. So with that, I'm going to be withdrawing from the game. If you want to see me play, there's two days left. Send them a message. Let them know your opinions. I'm yeah. here. Okay, so people thought this was just an excuse. Now, do I think there was a real discussion with Ryan about some term that they couldn't agree to? Yes. 
But it's very possible that the term for this was something completely unreasonable. And then Ryan said no, and it didn't happen. I don't believe that Ryan agreed to some term and then backed away from it. So it could have been something like he gets paid something to appear. Or it could have been that he gets some sort of ownership in Hustler Casino Live. Or it could have been a certain amount of promotion for just Mickey himself. It, 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 whatever it was, it was probably something that Mickey knew that Ryan was going to say no to. And then he could use that to back out of it. Maybe this was something he asked for originally. And maybe Ryan said, I'll discuss it with Nick. And then they said no, and then Mickey waited until the last minute to drop out. But whatever it was, I doubt that Ryan called him and yanked away some term that they had agreed to. There's got to be more to that story. They wouldn't do this at the last minute. That's the first thing. Like, even if there was something that was agreed to, let's say there was an appearance fee. They wouldn't have decided on like the final day, okay, we're not going to pay the appearance fee even though up until a few days ago we've agreed for months to do this. I I just don't see that happening. Either they would have made a decision where, yes, we're going to go through with this, or no, we're not. So there has to be way more to this story. And I think it's because Mickey did not have the money to play or just didn't want to risk that money because it's basically his whole bankroll. So it was something along those lines. Whether he ever appeared to be on there in the first place is in question, But that was his statement, and people didn't really believe it. In fact, this really validated the skepticism that many people had regarding Mickey appearing in the first place. Now, here is Doug Polk's take on the whole thing. And he released a video on May 28th uh, talking mostly about this, but some other things. Uh, Let me get to the Mickey part here. Also tonight, Mickey drops out of the Million Dollar Cash Game. And a Reddit sleuth figured out that the check that he posted on Reddit was actually a check from a couple of years ago in 2021. The internet remains undefeated. And finally... Okay, so let's talk about right there. He's talking about a number of subjects. So uh, let's stop right there before I play you the rest of what Doug had to say about Mickey. This check he's talking about was a check... From Mickey to Mickey, he blocks out most of his name, which is uh, Michael Metterman, but it doesn't matter. Like, it was a check, a cashier's check for a million dollars, provided it's real. It's not even clear if it was ever a real check, but it was a check for a million dollars from him to him. And he posted this as proof that he had the money and was all ready to play, that this was actually a check that he had generated for Hustler Casino Live. Well, it was discussed on Reddit, and someone on Reddit realized something upon analyzing the check. And this is the problem. Whenever you post, quote, proof to the internet, if it's going to have enough people analyzing it, they're going to poke holes in your story. It's very hard to fool the entire body of people following a story on the internet if you're not telling the truth. Anyway, it turned out that the check was from 2021. (laughs) A problem was that the name on the signature for the check was 
Reginald Chambers, Chief Administrative Officer, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. So this is supposedly a Chase check that was a cashier's check. And one of the immediate problems that was found is million-dollar Chase cashier's check from Mickey to Mickey was that this Reginald Chambers was not the chief administrative officer since 2021. So (laughs) that was a big issue. So it was probably an old check. And he also blocked the date out. So he blocked uh, a few things. He blocked, uh, looks like part of the account number. Then he blocked the date. And he blocked his name so you can't see what his real name is, which is pretty well known at this point anyway. I'm not giving away any big secret. I think this was a real check. And this is typically what people will get when they are switching bank accounts and they don't want to wire it for whatever reason. You'll get a check from you to you. Another thing this could be for is it could be for a casino account in 2021 that he did deposit or was planning to deposit a million dollars into a casino. Some casinos will have it to where you write the check to the order of them, and some of them you will write it to the order of yourself. It depends on the way they uh, do their system, where you are sending money to them or depositing money to them for you to play. So the from him to him doesn't really mean that much. But the fact that the date is blocked out, why would he ever block out the date? It makes sense why he would block out his full name if he still thinks some people don't know that or part of the account number. That totally makes sense. Why would you ever block out the date? Why is the date a secret? The date is obviously sometime between when the million dollar game was announced and the date that he canceled. So why does it matter which day in that few-month period it is? That doesn't tell people anything other than that he's lying. So that already is suspicious. And, of course, this uh, chief administrative officer not being there anymore is the biggest smoking gun. So Mickey was caught lying, and that's not shocking. So let's get to the part now where he discusses Mickey and, and the check. This is again on Doug Polk's show. Expanding on the the Mickey post, he posted a picture of the check showing the million dollars ready to go. And I love the internet. A sleuther went through and found that the signature on that check came from the person that worked at Chase two years ago. And so this check has to be at least a couple years old, which means this is not a check that was for the million dollar game, but is instead an old check that is being used or forged or something to show that he would play, but reality is he probably does not have the money. My take on the whole Mickey thing, from the get-go, it's just been a little weird to me. I don't know the Baccarat situation. My understanding is you can't really beat that game without some kind of edge-sorting tactics like we saw with the Phil Ivey case. Regardless, I don't know Mickey at all. But I can say that I do not have any belief that Hustle Casino Live promised him something and then reneged. I I just personally can't see it. Moving on. It wasn't just Aussie Matt that was going to play and then... Okay, so that was Doug's entire comment on the whole thing. Mickey responded to Doug. This really bothered him that Doug said these things because while a lot of people were very critical of Mickey and thought he was full of crap, what really 
got Mickey's goat probably was the fact that Doug has such a large platform. So it's one thing for just randoms on Twitter to say it or randoms on Reddit. But for Doug, with his 385,000 subscribers and with his videos typically getting six figures in viewership, such as this one, got uh, almost 200,000 views. Mickey knew that a lot of people were going to hear Doug basically calling him a phony. Doug was kind of careful in his language, but the message was clear. He didn't directly say that Mickey is broke, but uh, yeah, that seems to be what he's implying. So Mickey has come back with a response to Doug, and I'm going to play it for you. I made an agreement with Hustler Casino Live that I wouldn't speak on the terms of the million dollar game, but they will come out in the documentary being filmed about it. Doug Polk, just an idiot, man. You know, Doug and I had like became friendly over the last few months, text frequently, talked about the million dollar game a lot with each other in preparation. He reposted a subreddit thread about the check, except the subreddit thread was false. This strikes me as it seems like he's trying to save face in some fashion. This is not a check that was for the million dollar game. It's instead an old check that is being used or forward to show that he would play, but reality is he probably does not have the money. Not so he's playing what Doug was saying about it. And now let's listen to his response. Only does the employee still work at JP Morgan. Most checks are good with no expiration date. Some of them are good for seven years. There's nothing wrong with protecting you from yourself, making cash a little harder to get when you're a high stakes degenerate gambler. After that video came out, I called Doug right away and he offered to make a second video retracting his statement and putting in the facts. Last night, he shot me a text and he goes, there's been too much action in the million dollar game. People moved on. I gotta make videos about other things. I'm not gonna make a second video apologizing. He didn't tweet about it and mention it at all. He just shot me a text last night and said there's bigger and better things on the horizon. I'm not going to make the second video. So here is... Okay, let me stop this right here. So he is going through text messages that are allegedly from Doug Polk. Now, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Remember, he's just showing that it says Doug Polk. doesn't say a phone number, so he could be sending this to himself from Doug Polk and just entering that into his contacts. But it's possible this is real, too. So this is showing... Him saying to Doug, yo, Doug saying back, on a call with my wife, I'll text you after, I just watched the intro and my segment on you. I did not say any of the things you just told me. It was super tame. Now, I think that was probably Doug. That's looking like it's probably a real text. And then Mickey wrote back, on the phone with Ryan now, he is very hesitant, but he said he'll talk to you. That's what uh, Mickey texted him. Then Doug texted back, and I'm seeing this from what Mickey's scrolling through on his phone in this video. The intro says the check is two years old, which is true. I'll also say it's my belief they do not pay players and that they do not renege on a deal, which is also true. I said the check might be forged or isn't real, or you might not have the money. I didn't say anything strongly. Then Mickey wrote... Two years does not mean anything bad. You talk... It's hard to read his reflections here. You talk down about me in its regard... Then I can't read the rest of it. Regard like it's something negative. I do, though, every time, so that's not true. I also never said they reneged. Well, he did say that they went back on a term or canceled the term, so he kind of did say that. Now I can't see the rest because it's too blurry. 
So let's hear the rest. This wasn't really supposed to be paused and read, but I just did it. I was on the phone with Feldman to how Doug really skewed it, and it really wasn't fair to me. Feldman said, I'm more than happy to speak to Doug and straighten the story. And they did talk. I sent a screenshot of all my proof. Doug still decided there's more clickbait-worthy things than a second video of him apologizing to me. Okay, so what he didn't show was any proof that Doug ever said he's going to apologize. Now, maybe in order to pacify Mickey, Doug said something like, Okay, I'll apologize if it came off that I was saying you're broke. I'll put out there that I don't have any proof of that. And then Doug thought better of it. It's like, ah, you know, I actually just don't have the time to do this. (laughs) I'm sure that it's not that Doug is lacking time. I think it's that Doug thought better of putting out whatever he thought he was going to say at first to pacify Mickey. Like in the moment, he may have told Mickey he'll put something out there to not make it seem as strong as he was putting in the first place. And then he thought, you know what? I I already did say maybe this, maybe that. I I never said these things were for sure. So I don't feel like doing this and I don't want to argue with Mickey. So I'll just say I'm too busy. I bet it's something like that. So Mickey's all pissed off and he just put this out. Now, the reason it sounds so stilted is this was put out through poker.org on their Twitter. And I, don't know why they edited it this way. I assume they're the ones who edited it, not Mickey. But it was really like they were trying to squeeze it in and fit in 90 seconds. So they were just editing out any pauses that he made in his speech. So it sounds like it's all patched together. It's, it's a very weird video. And the background noise you're hearing is the World Series of Poker. So they actually recorded Mickey speaking about this at the World Series of Poker. Now, notice he doesn't say it's a recent check. So I guess the story he's going to go with is that it is an old check, but that it's still something that will be accepted. And since it's from him to him, it's not like the check says to Hustler Casino Live, where obviously he couldn't have had that done in early 2021 before Hustler Casino Live even existed. But it's from him to him. So he can claim, look, this is a cashier's check I had from me to me that I never ended up uh, depositing anywhere. So I've just been holding it. And now I've decided to use it for Hustler Casino Live. And I was about to give it to them to use. And uh, then the whole thing fell through because Ryan went back on some term. Well, there's a few problems with that story. If that's what he's trying to say, I have a feeling that's what he's going to come with. That this is a real check. It's Yes, it's two years old, but it, it would still be good. So why does this matter? Well, it matters a few ways. First of all, why are you even showing a check from two years ago that may or may not be a good check anymore if you never deposited it? Maybe, maybe you did have a cashier's check printed and then you canceled it at some point uh, before you ended up doing anything with it. So it's, it's worthless. So... Even if you had a million dollars two years ago, why does that matter what you have today? How does that have to do with what you have today? How is that proof of anything you have today? People are not saying Mickey has never had a million dollars to his name. That's not what they're saying. People are saying he did not have a million dollars to play in this game. That's why he backed out. So if you want to counter that and show some kind of banking-related proof You have to show that either you have a cashier's check that was made for Hustler Casino Live 
or show that this is at least a very recent cashier's check that was made for you if it wasn't for Hustler Casino Live. But you can't show a check from 2021 for a million dollars and say, oh, well, this was the one I was going to use for Hustler Casino Live. Well, who knows if that money's there anymore? I mean, that's a crazy thing to say. Do you know how many people in gambling and in poker had a million dollars two years ago that don't have it now? Tons. This happens all the time. That's the nature of gambling. It's a lot of degenerates who go through that money very quickly. Mickey admits he bets very big. So why even show this? How is that proof? Let's, let's assume that Mickey's telling the truth and had the money the whole way and really backed out because he didn't like that Ryan went back on a term. Let's just say we believe his story. And then people are doubting him and he's showing them proof. How is this proof? How is this old check proof, even if it would be accepted? And that's the second problem. A casino will never accept a cashier's check from two years ago. They never will. In fact, most of these are only good for like 90 to 180 days. It'll say on the check usually how long it's going to be good for. It's never good for two years. So you can't just hold this cashier's check forever and then give this to someone. I don't know what he thinks he's doing here. I think it's very possible what he did because the truth is to, let's say he had this cashier's check generated. If you were to cancel it and not actually deposit it anywhere, they would take it back. Now, I suppose he could claim he lost it or something, but why would he have this in his possession? Well, there's a decent chance that he took a picture of this back at the time when he got it, that this is actually an old picture. So it's very possible that he either deposited this to a casino or he moved banks, whatever it was, and he took a picture of the check for whatever reason, maybe just a sense of someone, hey, look at this, a million-dollar cashier's check. And he still had that picture laying around for two years ago on his phone, which, you know, why wouldn't he? And then he repurposed it for this. So bottom line is... There's no way the casino would take this as a deposit. There's no way this check would even work as a deposit. You can't just hold cashier's checks for years and then go deposit them. You'd have to get it again. You'd have to get it remade. This is bullshit to say the least. At the very least, to say that this would still be good two years later, he doesn't know what he's talking about. There's no way that would ever be accepted by the hustler. And it it doesn't prove anything. So even if he's telling the truth, his proof is bullshit. And also, it would never still say the name of the chief administrative officer on a cashier's check if they haven't been that for two years. I don't care if they're still with Chase. I don't know if this person is or not. But if they are not in that position, it would not say that on these checks two years later. Chase would update its checks. And he's not even really denying it's two years old. He's like, oh, well, if it's two years old, you know, they'll still take it. And why did he cover the date? He covered the date because he doesn't want you to see it's 2020 or 2021 or something like that. It could be more than two years old. It's just that person left Chase in that position, at least, in early 2021. So this could be from 20, from 19, who knows? So the whole thing's just bullshit. And he's making this supposed documentary. How many times have you heard someone say, you'll see it in the documentary? I mean, Mike Possel used that line. Where's his documentary? Remember the Mike Possel documentary? Where's that? What about 
Brian Sagbixall from Hustler Casino Live, the guy who stole $15,000 from Robbie Stack, his documentary, which we only saw the first part of, which didn't reveal anything, that somehow had my voice opening it. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> you probably heard on a previous show where it was actually my voice opening Brian Sagbixall's documentary and without my permission. How can we never see these documentaries? Documentaries that are going to shock the world. They just never come to pass. They never appear. Now, maybe Mickey's will, but to tell us we have to wait for the documentary to hear the reason, I mean, at least give us a hint. Now, do I believe that there was some term? Yeah, I think there's probably some term he asked for that Hustler Casino Live was not willing to do. And this is probably his excuse to back out. I don't think he called up Ryan and said, hey, Ryan, uh, I don't have the money. Sorry, I can't play. I don't think he called up Ryan and said, hey, you know, I'm just going to back out of this because I don't feel like coming anymore. I think that he probably caused this rift to occur so he'd have an excuse not to show up. It would be like, let's say there was a guy who challenged me to a heads-up poker match to settle some grudge. And at first I agree to it. And we're going to play heads-up for a million bucks. Kind of Nick Airball, Matt Berkey style. And then I think better of it. And I say, oh shit, I I shouldn't have agreed to this. I don't want to play this guy for a million bucks heads-up. What did I agree to here? So then I think to myself, well, we don't have this set in stone under concrete terms So let's see. Let me think about uh, what this guy would never accept. So I call him up and say to him, okay, I'm still willing to do this uh, million-dollar match, but uh, here are my terms. Number one, we have to do it in a casino which is close to me. And nobody who is uh, friendly with you can be in the room, but I get to have at least 10 friends sitting on the side cheering for me. That's number one. Number two, I want to be able to record this and sell copies of it, but you can't do that. Number three, you have to agree to let me have sex with your girlfriend, and she has to agree to do it as well. And if I don't get all three of these things, then I'm not going to play. But if if you can do all these three things for me, then I'll play. And then, of course, the guy would say, what are you talking about? This is insane. And it wouldn't happen. And I could truthfully say, well, I had terms and the guy wouldn't meet them. So he's the one who made it not happen. But the truth would be in a, such a situation that I would be intentionally asking for unreasonable things that he won't agree to. And... That's why he said no, and then that was my excuse to get out of the match. So so that's the problem here, is that Mickey probably asked for something that he knew Ryan would say no to. The appearance fee was just something people were guessing at. It didn't necessarily have to be that. But whatever it was, the, he assessed what Ryan would probably not agree to and asked for it. And maybe it was even as far as, okay, we'll talk to Nick and discuss it. And then they came back and said no. I, I highly doubt that they agreed to this and at the last minute they backed away from it. It just doesn't make any sense. Because I know Ryan wanted him in the game. So why would they agree to this and just say, no, we're not keeping to this? 
It would also make them look bad for anyone in the future if they agree to something and then at the last minute say, no, we're not doing this anymore. And Ryan, and it could be proven that that happened. So I think there's a lot left out of that story or it's fabricated or it's semi-fabricated. Whatever it is, I'm sure if we found out the truth, it wouldn't be the way that Mickey is portraying it. I'd be very surprised if that were to be the case. And I'd like to hear from Mickey if he ever hears this and and wants to respond. I want to know what you feel that check was proving, even if you've been telling the truth the whole way. What do you feel an old check from 2021 or earlier would prove about a game in mid-2023? Even if you think Hustler would accept it, I'm asking about how does this prove anything to us when nobody is doubting that at one point you had money? So if we all concede that at one point... Mickey had seven figures, which I'm willing to concede. I think you probably did. Then what is showing an old check going to prove anyone? In short, I think that Mickey is full of crap. And you know what, Mickey? If you're not full of crap, why didn't you meet with me and show me these casino win-loss statements? In fact, I think uh, we're both in Vegas at the moment. Uh, We can still do it. You can still meet up with me and show me these casino win-loss statements. Again, not ones that you choose, but ones that I choose. And we can see what they add up to. But I think there's a reason that you didn't do this. You didn't come through with doing this because you realized that I would see the truth and I'd report the truth. Because I would only do it if I could, at the very least report the true results of what I see, even if I didn't give direct numbers. Even if I could just say either Mickey was a winner or Mickey was a loser overall. But I would not do it where I have to keep a complete secret of what I see, where I can't explain whether you were telling the truth or not. Then I wouldn't do it, of course. That would be worthless. So anytime you make extraordinary claims, you have to back them up with proof. So you're claiming you're killing Baccarat, you're killing unbeatable games or you're killing blackjack without counting cards, then you need to be able to show proof if you're going to make the claim. Now, if you're doing it and you don't want to give things away, then don't make the claim. Don't make your whole social media persona about how you're crushing the casinos. Anyone can claim anything about beating the casinos, but if you want credit for beating the casinos, then you have to show some kind of proof or have someone who is reliable, who has vetted all the proof privately to back you and say, yes, it's true. And with something like this, with Hustler, you have to show some kind of evidence that this is what really happened. Otherwise, why say it? The story just doesn't add up. Okay, so I'm going to shut it down here. We had other topics, which uh, maybe I will do next week. There was the security guard shot at the underground poker game. There is the situation with Eden Rocks that at some point I'll talk about. And then I was going to do an editorial, but I'm going to skip all that. The show's been on a very long time, and I just don't have the energy to do the rest of it. Sorry. There's only so much I can do. Even I have my limits when it comes to long shows. Thank you for listening Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. 
I don't have an exact date for the next show. You know, it is during the World Series of Poker. It'll be something approximately in the two-week range where we will cover the two weeks after right now. Because I am busy with World Series stuff, I'm not sure when I will get this in the archives, especially with the length of the show. But I'll try to get this done as soon as I can. I want to thank Brandon and Trader Ruski for coming on with me for the time that they did. And hopefully I get some better luck going forward in the World Series here, because I can tell you that I've just really had a lack of hot runs in these events I've played for the last two years. It's one thing that you build a stack and then chunk it off because you don't play well. Or that you win some big pots but then lose them right back because you shoot it off. Or you're way too tight and don't give yourself the ability to accumulate chips. But I, I can tell you that's not me. I just am not having the runs where I build it up. So, hopefully one of these will come. I know it can't be every event. I know most events that won't happen, but maybe I can get one of these where it just all falls the right way. And then I'll try to make the most of it when it does. That's all I can hope for. And you know, the three events I've bricked so far, you know, I wasn't even that mad. I just, I wasn't really mad at all. I just thought, okay, well, just didn't run well. Time to move on. There's just so many of these that I've played over my lifetime. Unless it's something unusual or super disappointing, you just shake it off. Shalom!